Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode two of The Table Podcast. I certainly hope that you enjoyed episode one. My name is Nick Han. I am joined by my brother, Drew. Yeah. There he is. And Miggy over on the computer over there doing all things technological and uh, running the show. It's what he does. Uh, Today's going to be a whole lot of fun. Um, I do want to say if you have enjoyed uh, the podcast thus far, I know you're going to continue to learn kind of what it's about. But if you do a favor and like it, comment, give us good reviews, emphasis on good reviews and good reviews only. Isn't that right, boys? That's right. That's what we take. If you want, if you want to send like, you know, it's always funny when you start something new and people want to give like constructive criticism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like what makes what makes criticism constructive? Like how do you get to be to the decider of, hey, I have some constructive criticism yeah. for you. You know, people, that's that's people for you in 2019. Everybody gets an opinion and we want yours if it's positive. <laughs> so send it our way. I do want to say, too, with long form uh, conversation, you may be wondering like, man, these are this is a long podcast. This is something that is super important. I think, uh, I know guys, we've talked about it a little bit, but in the world that we live in, there is so much just soundbite media coming mm-hmm. at us, um, clips that have been edited. And I think that um, a lot of times you hear someone say something and you make so many assumptions about the topic that they're talking about or the type of person that they are, where when you're able to actually sit and listen in a conversation, you actually get to what they're trying to say mm-hmm. over you know, the soundbite of what was said. I think that could be one of the great things that kind of divides us in our world is we because we're so used to sound bites, we capitalize on certain phrases that somebody might say. So the yeah. goal is through if you can listen to a conversation and not just hear what somebody is saying, but truly, you know, think about what you think about mm-hmm. and uh, kind of dig in in the context of the conversation and realize where somebody's coming from. That, that's, it's, it's intentional and it's a huge part of this podcast. Yeah. So yep. I want to say that. Why are you looking at me crooked face? Crooked? You were looking at me crooked face. <laughs> Bro, because you're coming in glowing. Am I glowing? <laughs> you know, I've, yeah. Yeah, I've been just laying in the sunshine. I hope I had a great Valentine's Day. Did you? Did you have a great Valentine's Day? My soul is sucked into my computer. (laughs) Yeah, you come in looking fresh. I look a little tan today. Is what he's saying. Rivalry. Rivalry. Is that sibling rivalry? (laughs) (laughs) Did you guys have a good Valentine's Day? You know, it's been good so far. Yeah. Yeah. Valentine's week around here, mm-hmm. and I hope that you uh, continue to have a, a good one. This podcast today, we have special guest Tony Hoffman. Tony is an incredible, incredible human being. Uh, you're absolutely going to love him. His story is just phenomenal. He's overcome uh, drug addiction, actually went to prison, came out of prison. Uh, he now runs a nonprofit. He's been to the Olympics and travels the world telling his story. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation, especially if you're somebody who um, has family member or you've struggle with addiction in any way. Very, very insightful. There's lots of layers to it. Um, you'll notice that if you're watching on the video podcast, we have a bull that's that's hanging on our wall. It's a golden bull. And in the beginning of the podcast, something bad happened because we have some rookies on our set <laughs> and um, we're still learning, learning what we're doing around here. And so literally Tony looks like he has horns for the first like... <laughs> 10, 15 minutes like very very funny like it looks like he is el diablo so um then we move it and all that so don't be distracted if you're listening it's not going to affect your experience at all but some people want to know why we even have the bull and there's lots of reasons for that it i mean if you really it's probably like slightly illuminati but we don't want to get into that could it be could it not be or is it just because table the last part of table is bull yeah. and so you have a bull i mean there's so many angles yeah, that's good there's so many angles we could work. So don't try don't try to, to ask too many questions. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
save that for your conversations. It's going to be a good one. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoy it. The incredible Tony Hoffman. I feel like that's a really common sentiment for people who feel gifted or have an inspiration to go after something. They have this idea of, uh, you, you know, I, I feel like I have this, call it a calling, call it a passion, yeah. uh, especially for communicators, mm-hmm. people who uh, do what, what you do. And then there's this flip side of, okay, if I have this message, how are going to people, how are people going to know it and invite me to come and speak at things yep. if I don't tell them? How do you tote the line of, of self-promotion? I got to get the message out. Yeah. But at the same time, having, I mean, call it insecurities, anxiety, mm-hmm. questioning of, uh, of whatever. How, how, do you, how do you balance the two or get them to work together? So a lot of my skills and, and promotion came from my athletic gifts. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was gifted at every sport. And I don't mean to say that in in a boasting way. I mean, but, kind of, but... Right. No. <laughs> I was better than everybody at whatever sport I played until yeah. I got to an age where you had to be big to play football. Yeah. You had to be tall to play basketball. But by the time I got into middle school, I found my, my talent in a, a BM, on a BMX bike. Right. So I raced BMX. Can we well, talk about how your name is like the perfect BMX like or his well, name like well, tony like, hoffman like guess what he does everybody like i would just guess bmx oh, you know is your real name anthony yes okay if but, you went, if you went by anthony hoffman i would think you maybe write books yeah right <laughs> you would think of somebody that's a little more gentle looking and sounds wise i love it no. so okay so back to so you got into doing bmx, BMX. okay and extreme sports is self-promoting right if you want to excel in those sports in terms of sponsorships i was good at one presenting a good package. So like I'm into fashion, like I've always been that way. Mm-hmm. So when I got into racing, my bike looked better than other people's. I put together better racing outfits than other people. And then when the time came that I started beating other people, I was recognizable. Like there's some, this, this guy's different. Right. When I was 18 years old and I was on the cover of a magazine, like I was racing in a pink outfit. So I was sponsored by Fox Racing, had a contract with them. They put me in every gear that Bubba Stewart raced in, which I don't know if you know anything about motocross. Mm-hmm. Bubba Stewart was a black kid that basically was the fastest guy in the world, wow. crashed a lot, but he wore pretty flamboyant outfits. Uh-huh. Well, same with me. Well, that attention, I went and used that attention to say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a sponsorship, would love to run your guys' product, I love your stuff. And so I kind of learned the self-promoting part of going out, pounding pavement and finding support, mm-hmm. which I also used in my nonprofit. It just was hard for me when I was at a banquet. Yeah. Because I don't like talking about myself outside of the purpose of what talking about myself is used for and helping right. other people. So it was kind of uh, a skill I acquired when I was younger, the self-promoting part, but still struggled with the social anxiety issue of going up to random people in certain settings and being the center of attention. And I don't know, it was a struggle. I had a lot of suicidal thoughts when I was in middle school. Really? Oh, yeah. Hard, yes. hard to make friends. Didn't know who my friends were. A lot of people wanted to be me because I was so good at, you know, being an athlete as I was. You know, people would be like, man, I wish you could play sports like you play. Yeah. And I didn't like that. Yeah. You know? For a lot of people, I think that, I mean, especially in this day and age, the suicidal anxiety, depression thing, especially, I'm mm-hmm. not talking about like adults that are working, you know, three jobs trying to provide for, I'm talking about teenagers mm-hmm. who are in high school 
a lot of them may not even have a lot of the financial burdens or things like that, but the pressure comes from other places. Yeah. So for, for you, like in, in when you were going through those kinds of things, what was the source of your anxiety? What was the source of the things that led you? I mean, you said I had a lot of suicidal thoughts. What was... I hated my gift. Really? At that, at that age? I didn't I mean, like how, it. How old are we talking? My, the first time I knew I, I hated was probably fifth or sixth grade. And when you say gift, what are you talking about? Playing sports. You hated your ability to play sports? Yeah, because I didn't want to be better than anybody else. What? Uh, so, yeah, it sounds crazy, but it took a, I had to go through hell yeah. and come out the other side, right, with Christ for okay. me to really take that self-awareness journey to actually answer the question, who am I? Yeah. Like, I ask a lot of people, who are you? Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm this person, and I, and I do accounting, and I do this, and I'm like, no, who are you? Right. Yeah. What's underneath there? Yeah. I found out that I'm very compassionate, mm-hmm. very empathetic, and because of that, I don't want to be better than you. Hmm. I'm just like you. I struggle just like you. I feel just like you. And when we get into the arena where my gift is, I didn't have the ability to turn that off yeah. while I was performing my gift. Like, it's okay to be better than other people yeah. if that's your gift. That's why you have it, is so you can excel, so you can be successful, so you can support yourself, so you can help other people. I didn't have that. Right. I had this, I don't want the attention. I remember telling my volleyball coach in sixth grade when he said, Hoffman, you could be a champion. Don't you want to be a champion? And I just looked him in the eyes. I said, no. Hmm. I want you to leave me alone. Really? Stop treating me like I'm somebody different. Treat me like everybody else. And you think, and for you that you think that that came from despite it, you don't think and associate that with the pressure that comes with the gift. I'm sure it is. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it is. And I didn't know how to deal with that pressure, yeah. but I also didn't know how to. Like I said, I didn't, I couldn't embrace my gift. Now I embrace my gifts. Right. When I see it, when I when I when I recognize my gifts, now I, I'll push because I recognize that as long as I'm on the right channel mentally and spiritually right. nothing can stop me yeah it's a matter of obstacles that i have to go through or get over or go around to learn and in that struggle those process of hurdles whatever that struggle or pain is that comes with those there are the lessons that make me stronger they're the lessons that make me better and they're the lessons that make me more self-aware to take me to the next level to finish right. the work that i started so for you when you were dealing with the anxiety the suicide i mean what what age were, were, were you talking 11 years okay, old okay so 11 years old mm-hmm. and you're thinking i don't want i don't want to be here yeah i hate this so for for you i mean i know that you i mean for a lot of people listening they might not know your entire journey but even venturing into drug use substance abuse addiction mm-hmm. is that where that led yeah those so what i try to tell people is Drugs are a symptom to the problem. They're never the actual problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you have females that have been sexually abused at 10 years old. Males, a lot of males, yeah. that have been sexually abused Absolutely. in their younger years, which have an adverse mental effect. Anxiety, depression, guilt, shame. Then you have the addiction component. Does alcoholism or addiction run in your family? Because if it does, there's a genetical component to addiction. Right. Right. When your card gets pulled for the addiction component and you have some kind of traumatic experience, or in my case, emotional neglect. My parents mm-hmm. were, are boomers. They worked 14-hour days. I was raised by um, a Paisa babysitter, loved her. Vera was great. She was always there for us. But I didn't have mom and dad's attention like I could have had. Mm-hmm. Don't blame my parents for anything. We all have our own struggles, right? Right. But that emotional neglect, the social anxiety, now is be- the depression, 
take me into the high school years, successful at BMX, contract with Fox Racing, Airwalk shoes, spy sunglasses on the contract or on the cover of the largest BMX racing publication in the United States, mm-hmm. ranked number one in the country. He's going to go be successful is what everybody would have thought. But they didn't know that I was struggling on the inside. Mm. When I get to the moment where we see kids experimenting with drinking, smoking weed, kind of, you know, the carousing part of yeah. our lives, I'm in this I'm in this arena with these kids and I'm saying, I'm never going to do this. I don't want to do this because I'm going to go, at that time, I was going to go to San Diego to be a network administrator for a guy that was Entrepreneur of the Year at California, 23 years old. He was going to mm-hmm. start a wireless internet company. I had a gift with computers as well. And so I don't need to do this because I'm going to go have a career in computers down in San Diego. You don't need to do what? To smoke weed and drink. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's not something I need to do. But I wasn't strong enough with self-esteem. I had lacked self-esteem. You know, I needed validation from other people. Yeah. I had those anxiety issues, social anxiety issues. And so I caved in to try and fit in with people. What age were you at this point? 18. Okay. So, which is actually late. Yeah. You know, traveling as a speaker now, it's late. Most yeah. kids are smoking weed by the time 15, 16. So what were, the, what were the, 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 between the years 11, of, were you just coping? I mean, what was your 11 to 18? That's a, those are pretty formidable years. Yeah. So I had a, I had a moment where I was kicked out of seventh grade. Uh, a girl had asked me to get her some weed, got her the weed. She got caught and I got kicked out of school. Kind of gave me a scared straight, uh-huh. at least in, in terms of making bad decisions. I didn't yeah. want to get in trouble. The bike, I was on the bike so much that it, it kind of mm. minimized it, yeah. right? I try to tell kids, you'll know it's your gift when you don't feel life. Yeah. You'll know it's your gift when you forget about every single thing when you're doing it. Yeah. If, if that's what happens when you're doing whatever it is you're doing, that's your gift. Yeah. I don't care if it's math, reading books, writing, doing hair, filming, mm-hmm. doing podcasts, whatever that is. If that happens, that's your gift. Yeah. Use that. It's going to take you where you're supposed to go. My bike was doing that, but I wasn't doing any of the self-work because mm. I didn't recognize. And by self-work, you mean internal. Re- internal work. Yeah. But at that time in the 90s, we weren't talking about anxiety. Yeah. yeah. We didn't talk about depression. It wasn't about your inner self back then, right? No, no. And if some people make fun of that now still, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I get where they're coming from because there's a side of we can push this emotional car too far. Yeah. And now we're just playing the victim. But there also needs to be a recognition of who we are, what we feel, and how those feelings have an adverse effect on how we act. Yeah. I wasn't, there, there was none of that. Right. It was, if you went to therapy, you're the crazy kid. Right, absolutely. If your parents- Such a stigma with it too, right? Oh, huge. And yeah. there still is. Oh, yeah. My answer to that is that starting in elementary school, all kids should be seeing a therapist at least twice a year yeah. on campus. Yeah. So every kid knows. We go here. This is who we talk to. Yeah. We all have problems. We talk to this person. So when we do have an outlier or we have the one that's going to start drifting to the wayside, when they have to spend more time there, they don't feel like they're going to a place nobody else goes to. Yeah. Wasn't it interesting? I mean, that's, pr- that's pretty much how our world works as far as like what we're trained. We go to school to be educated on how to take care of our ex- external self, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, make money, uh, get an education, do this so that you could stack your chips. We're not really coached on how to handle the things that are within. And you're exactly right, because we don't talk about it. It becomes, you know, it becomes the, like what you're saying. Something's wrong with you if. Right. And, and you're never taught how to reconcile those things. Well, well then you have, then you have, you have that shame yeah. that, that adds to, I'm different. Yeah. I'm different than everybody else. Mm-hmm. And now I have to go here. Yeah. 
and now I don't like myself anymore. Yeah. Or I'd like, I like myself even less than I already liked myself. And I think that, you know, it's, that's such an important component to my work now is how do we eliminate that? Right. How do we empower kids that are in those situations? Because those kids are gifted in, in their own ways, but we're not seeking those out because we're focused on taking tests, yep. showing up to school, right. and working on the external part. Yeah, the path, the American so, path. I'm in the mountains, 18 years old, and I give in. I said, you know what, I'm going to smoke weed. I'll just try it mm-hmm. one time. That one time was not going to be it for me. Because as soon as I felt that high, it was like, I like this. Yeah. It took me away from, it took me away from the anxiety, the depression. But not only that, now it took me away from it, but I'm around people. Mm-hmm. Before, the only way for me to get away from it was in my gift, but I was by myself competing against other people. And I don't like being better than other people when yeah. I was competing at that time. And so I found myself smoking weed every day, like I told myself I wasn't going to do after about a month. Went down to San Diego. The job didn't work out. Um, the guy was actually a Ponzi scheme scam artist, believe it or not. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. Wanted by the FBI. Was wow. hiding in Spain. Um, you found out years later. Wow. I just know this job, this company that he was going to start never started. Yeah. And I was thinking, oh, what the heck, man? It's me. My self-esteem issues. It's, it's got to be me. Yeah. So I go back home after my best friend passed away in a car accident. And I didn't want to go to school. I hate school, man. I can't, st- I can't focus in a classroom. Mm-hmm. And I ask too many questions. Teachers don't like me because I ask questions or I talk too much, Yeah, which is exactly what I do for a living now. Yeah. You know, yeah. is I talk. Right. And I talk about the questions I've had in my life mm-hmm. that I've found answers to, you know? Yeah. So I came home and got introduced to pharmaceutical painkillers, which were the ultimate thing for me because- And how did that happen for you? How were you introduced to that? I got my wisdom teeth pulled uh-huh. and I got Vicodin, which was cool for me at that time because I took a few. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to follow these. You can't eat rules. So I'll just take three or four of these at a time and yeah. I'll just go to Taco Bell and get my normal chalupa and I won't feel it. Yeah. Well, taking three or four, I got the high. So I got introduced to the high then. But months later, my friend says, you know, there's this pill called Oxycontin that we need to try the guy that sells the Vicodin doesn't have any Vicodin, but says these Oxycontins are the new thing. So I tried one of these Oxycontins, which I learned was basically pharmaceutical heroin. Right. No difference. Mm-hmm. I've done heroin, done Oxycontin. The only difference was you pick one up from the pharmacy. It's packaged in an orange bottle. One, you go to West Fresno or whatever side of town you're on in whatever city or state you're in, and you get it in a little cellophane bag, yeah. foil wrapped around it. And how you use it's different. But the feeling is pretty much identical yeah i used that pill and that eliminated all of my anxiety took away all my depression and i was thinking this is the answer this is the way i've always wanted to feel now i feel normal now i feel now i feel normal you thought that's what normal was oh yeah and so so when you hear the word self-medicating yeah i get it yeah i don't know that every addict reaches a level of self-awareness where they can recognize what they were medicating, though. Mm-hmm. For me, I was medicating anxiety and depression. Right. Lo- did, do you have a, did you have addiction that ran in your family? Yeah, dad's side. Okay, on dad's side. Uh, his mom, her dad. I mean, it's just right down the line. And you're a pretty adamant believer that, I mean, there's the the the, the science behind that, that there's a, a gene. Is that what you were saying earlier? Yeah, I mean, science pretty much can... There's, so I've just presented at a conference in Anaheim uh-huh. and was approached by some people who are now leading the pack 
for a new test that can go through your DNA structure yeah. and almost pinpoint with 80% accuracy if you're an addict or not. Really, and, and addictive behavior venturing outside the bounds of just narcotics, correct? Oh, 100%. I mean, that's like, I mean, it could be anything. Right, 100%. But just an addictive personality there, that right. when you do it, you get hooked and it's... Yep, they're saying there's a component to your gene structure that they can look at that basically says you're a thrill seeker. Mm. And the thrill seeker is more prone to addiction. Is that like an adrenaline junkie kind of? I mean, is that the I same? I guess. You know, I, I hate... I try to stay away from blanket statements about mm. certain things, right? Because yeah. I don't know the whole science behind this yeah. stuff, so, you know, because that's to say not every adrenaline junkie is an addict. Well, what about when you you'd say trying to stay away from blanket statements, when you talk about, I heard, uh, I think it was on your TED talk that you did, and you were talking about, uh, you know, the first time that you use cannabis, marijuana, mm -hmm. and how if, you know, if you could go back and someone could tell you what your life would look like in X amount of years, mm -hmm. that you would have said no. Yes. You know, hearing your story now, there was cannabis, but then down the road, you had these prescription pharmaceutical medications that were somewhat seemingly unrelated. That was due to something else. Do you think that even without, even without the weed, you would have found yourself in the same position? Based upon that's a the, really good question. You know, based if of, if my friends were the same, a hundred percent. But I don't know that. Wait, do you so are you thinking that you your friends were what drove you into the addiction and influence? Okay. So if I'm already an addict before I ever walk through that door, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody has to walk me through the door. Mm -hmm. You don't walk yourself through it. You don't just. So who was that for you? The doctor. I mean, the, I mean no, because the, 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 the doctor. So I had that pill. That that prescription was going to run out 15 pills. Mm. Where else was I going to go? Somebody else had to show me that I could get those pills from the somewhere street. else, somewhere gotcha. else, you know, so you don't, you're not sitting on the couch one day and you're like, you know what? I'm going to go score some heroin right yeah. now. I'm going to kick start. Are you this. looking for it though? Are you asking around? Are you saying, no, Hey, no, I'm just around people yeah. that are trying things, doing things. Yeah. And so you're seeing, you're curious, mm -hmm. you know, no different than Adam and Eve. Yeah. There's the apple. Yeah. Okay. Well, we shouldn't do that. Somebody says, you can do that. Yeah. It'll be all right. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. I'll try it. Yeah. Then I walk through the door. Right. And I'm already an addict before then. So for me, as soon as I started, it wasn't going to stop. Uh -huh. And once it got going, then it was the, I don't know how to stop. Uh -huh. I want to stop, but I don't know how to stop. Try to get sober. I mean, I got on a bus, went to Oregon seven days later, tried to steal a tractor, hitchhiked to the bus station, snuck on the bus and came back. Mm. because I needed to get drugs. Wow. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on when it comes to, to drugs or whether it be pharmaceutical, whether it be, I mean, you look at, you, it's, it's, a, it's a freight train, even the, the cannabis industry that's taken off, you know. Um, what are your thoughts on it? You, not big guy on, on blanket statements. You hear, I mean, the studies, there are people that prescription medications obviously help. Yeah. Um, cannabis, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, do you, do you feel that that is accurate and that is true? Do you feel like it has to do with, you know, if you're an addict, it's, it, the rules are different from, for you? Yes. So is that where yes. the, the line is drawn? The problem is, is we have one side that believes it's the same side that believes uh, it's the same group that would be the white people that say, just hand them your ID and say, yes, sir, no, sir. And you'll go on your way. Because mm -hmm. nobody that does that gets shot and killed mm. for no reason, which is not the truth. Right. I've seen videos right. where it's clear. Why did that guy die? Okay. They'll do the same thing with addiction. Mm -hmm. I've smoked weed. 
right didn't have a problem with it you definitely hear that so you lack willpower Mm -hmm. you're choosing this you're a junkie Mm -hmm. because it didn't do that to me Mm -hmm. so we push our reality on other people right no there there is a clear difference between some people and other people yeah and we have to have compassion and empathy towards those that are different yeah because it's not their fault right i didn't choose to be an addict yeah if i would have had the choice i would have been a, a kid with a good attitude, a hardworking ethic, and became successful without having to ever go through anything like that, uh-huh. right? So there is, a, there is a difference, and we're learning that because of the opioid epidemic. Yeah. These are... Well, it's for sure an epidemic, yeah, I mean... Well, to give you an idea, I've been in communities where th- smaller than Fresno, three people a day die. Really? They stack the bodies in trailers with freezers on them. Because they morgue can't process the bodies fast enough mm-hmm. in parts of Ohio. Twelve people a day in the state of Ohio are dying. Well, it, it, do you know anything about the epidemic? I mean, I mean, I'm I know there is one. Okay, so good. You don't know enough, right? So just give me a shot. What do you think the average age of an overdose individual is for the opioid epidemic? For opioid uh, average age, I would probably say like seventeen. Okay, exactly right. I, Most yeah. people think that it's kids, thirty-five to fifty-five. Really. Thirty-five. And, and what is the why? Because when they had a procedure given from the doctor, uh-huh. surgeries, yeah, what they get, yeah. So and then it's okay because it comes from the doctor, right? Well, right. And the doctor said this is safe. Mm-hmm. It's not addictive. Mm-hmm. Oxycontin is not addictive. Vicodin's bad, because but no doctor really says it's not addictive. They I mean, tell they, you it's the the likelihood of habit forming mm-hmm. is extremely low, much less than Vicodin. Mm-hmm. That's how this stuff was marketed. Vicodin, they say, is not safe because it contains a high amount of acetafetamine, Tylenol. So over time, if you continue to take those, it deteriorates your liver. Right, right. Oxycontin doesn't have that. And they promoted it as this time-release formula that can work throughout the day, and it's non-safe habit. It's safe. safe. So here, take these. Because it's safe. How's your pain? Oh, I'm still in pain. Okay, well, we'll just keep Mm -hmm. writing you prescriptions. These are people with jobs and health insurance. Little did they know that they were going to become addicted to this and that it was going to cause them to lose their life, their family, their jobs, cost them all kinds of things. Yeah. Normal people. Right. It's not your 17-year-olds. It's not your 20-year-olds. It's not the frat kids. Yeah. It's the baby boomers. Hmm. It's the Gen X. Is it those people too or is it not? It is those people too. 100%. Well, because, I mean, aren't these days too, I mean, the kids are finding their parents old prescriptions in the yeah. bathroom you know cupboard or whatever right. and I right mean, i think it's getting that's not to say that young kids aren't but the average age yeah i wouldn't i would have never thought that is is a boomer's age yeah you wouldn't think otherwise yeah because you want to believe that it's wild kids yeah. experimenting with drugs they'd have no idea what the power is yeah yeah it's and that's you know all across the midwest and in the east coast what are we looking at we're looking yeah, at death, ages. Death by age group. Hmm. Yeah, it is. It's in that that mid range there. It's so interesting. When you talk about uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that uh, I didn't. I you said the phrase I didn't choose to be an addict. Help help somebody who is listening that may be ignorant to what addiction is really rooted in because I I can already hear the argument of, okay, you didn't choose to be an addict, but at some point you chose to say yes to whatever you said yes to. Absolutely. That didn't everybody else? 
Well, I know, but I'm saying you didn't choose. You didn't. Choose, I don't know. Well, I can't speak for everybody else. I mean, well, have you ever that, drank alcohol? Yeah, I can't. Yeah, but but you but you have. There's people that would sit here and say, I I never have. I've never tasted alcohol. Right. I've said no from day one. Yeah. To day now. And I and, and what are the, and what is the actual percentage of those individuals? I, I don't That's know. That's a super low number. But but they're still people. Right. So what and do you say to those to those people? You have to understand that everybody's different. Mm-hmm. The fact that I would first acknowledge that they had the power to say no and have just never drank, never used a drug their entire lives, because I think it takes a certain uh, a certain level of self acceptance mm. to be able to say because that's I don't what need it's to do that's this. what it's really rooted in, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. We we do what other people do because there's a lack of self acceptance in some ways, especially mm-hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. That's not to say that people that go out and have a glass of wine for dinner and stuff are struggling with self acceptance. But yeah. I'm saying when it comes to the teenage years and you're in that peer pressure yeah. moment, you either do or you don't do. Right based on a lack of self-acceptance or strength and self-acceptance or self-esteem. And then once you once you say yes to that, then it becomes the escape from your your questions you already have, the, your current reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, ask every kid that's 19 years old, 20 years old, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. Who has that answer? Yeah. Kids that are going to med- school, medical school, maybe. Yeah. Kids that are already ready to be attorneys. You know, those outliers that are the exceptions to the rule that somehow just know what they want to do. Yeah. Everybody else is trying to find their place in the world. Right. Trying to find who their friends are, what they mean, what the world's all about, what their gifts are. They don't know that stuff at that age. Right. And so, you know, go, to go back to my answer for that person is that everybody's experience, uh, everybody's experience in life is different. I think the fatal mistake that we make is when we take our reality and we make it other people's. Absolutely. Projecting your reality onto somebody else. Right. If we say that, that love is patient love is caring, love is understanding, especially understanding, then that means mm-hmm. when we hear something that doesn't sit well with us, instead of trying to push what we believe is comfortable onto that person, why don't we ask ourselves, why does this make me feel uncomfortable? I need to know more about yeah. them right. and their situation so I can understand where they're coming from. Right. And then we might actually learn. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Like Just because I didn't use drugs and drink does it mean that this person wasn't going through some things and just was doing things the way everybody else was doing it, not like me, yeah. but this actually led them into a direction that would take them on a journey that they had no control over? Yeah. I was, you know, I was raised in a real conservative, like, Christian home. And so my parents did, I don't think, projected this on me, but I had this assumption that people who used drugs, people who smoked, people who drank, hmm. that these people... We're, we're not like me people, you know, I had this assumption. And then I remember fast forward in my life, like the first time that I smoked a cigarette and I smoked a cigarette and I remember sitting back thinking, I still feel like, I still feel like me. I still feel normal. And I remember thinking I've been judging all of these people that somehow they are mm-hmm. inhumane monsters different than me. And you have this overwhelming sense of, gosh, they are me. I am, yeah. I, I am them. Uh, this type of empathy that was birthed through, through I guess, in some ways, that experience. Uh, when you talk about uh, exactly that, you know, through conversation and being willing to be understanding and hear the other side of the table where you're coming from, mm-hmm. do you feel like that's a, a, a huge uh, 
key to overcoming some of these societal problems or absolutely yeah if we would have had this conversation 10 years ago it wouldn't look like this yeah that's true you know it, it, for myself because i wasn't at a level of practicing love mm -hmm. i'm gonna call it love because that's two things love yourself love god yeah love neighbors right two yeah. things I wasn't a level of awareness for love and practicing it to be able to say when I'm uncomfortable about what somebody else tells me, I need to sit back and ask myself why and try and understand. Yeah. yeah. But if we did that, yeah, we would be able to sit down at the table with opposing views yeah, and say, how do we come together and find our, our likeness as human beings and recognize that we both have experiences and that we have to have compassion for each other mm -hmm. and from there build a solution. We're not even near that in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Like we just want to fight, bicker back and forth. Where do forth. you think that that comes from? Because it, it's almost animalistic. Like you, you hear something that, uh, like, because it takes a great act of discipline to say, okay, I'm going to time out, and we disagree. I'm, I want to, I want to understand you mm -hmm. before I formulate judgment. But it is almost instinctual that when you hear something that is on the, the opposing side. I saw it in your eyes, even when I bring, when I bring up the, the example that I just did of somebody who's never. Well, how, how many of those, I mean, who, how many people out there can actually say that? There's this thing that's almost responsive before you time out and think and, and yeah. kind of, where does that come from, do you think? Do you think that that's literally a part of, our, of just I think instincts? It's, I think it's instinctual behavior, but uh, it's a misuse yeah. of instinctual behavior. No doubt. Right? Like we were given God-given instincts to feel and to act mm -hmm. for survival yeah we can also use those instincts out of pride yeah and ego uh -huh. fear mm -hmm. and those block yeah not only our ability to connect with other people but our ability to connect with god yeah because if we're constantly acting in fear and pride and our ego yeah then god can't he doesn't work on that wavelength yeah. right yeah and so I think that it's absolutely 100% instinctual. Yeah. It's just the misuse of our instincts. Yeah. But we're also in a day and age where spirituality is like, who does that? Mm -hmm. We don't need that. Science. Mm -hmm. Science is so great. Yeah. If you can't touch, see, feel, or research it, it's not real. I find for me, it's like either it's either all no or all yes. And if it's all yes, then it's everything. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's either I want nothing to do with spirituality or I want everything to do with everything, with the sun and the moon and the stars and the flowers and being yeah. one with this and one and one with that. But that goes with everything. Yeah. Because uh, you can't vote for Trump and not be a racist. Yeah. Because if Trump is a racist, then it doesn't matter what he does that benefits you and the uh -huh. reason you voted for him, you're racist. It's like I there's understand what you're saying. Yeah. There's no, and I'm not, I'm not, this isn't a Trump, this isn't a right. Hillary conversation because I hate <laughs> politics. Yeah. But I do, I see that this is the practice. It's now... It's bandwagon. Is it? Yes. Is, yeah. It's, no. Okay. So you it's, can't be it's in, black and white. Yeah, it's bandwagon-y. It's throw the baby out with the bathwater. If you're this, then you're all this. Right. You couldn't have voted for the guy because you thought he might fix healthcare. Yeah. Or he might fix the economy in a certain way that benefits you and your family. Nope. You can't do that. You're yeah. either here or here. Yeah. And I think that that's where we're, we're struggling as people. Mm -hmm. But I struggled with that when I was, when I was younger. Was pushing my beliefs, pushing my ego, push, but really it was fear. It's so fear. It's fear. so fear. Yeah, and fe the fear comes from 
I think, because because I don't understand, I reject because it doesn't fit in my box because it doesn't it doesn't look the color that I see through my lens. You see it differently, and you can't possibly be right. You know, you can't. Right. I can't possibly. And be even wrong. if you are, I'm not going to experience what it feels to be wrong. <laughs> right, right, and that's the ego part, right? Yeah. So I'm going to come back, even though I'm not right, and I'm going to make something that heals that temporary, extremely short-lived moment of humility. Yeah. And you, don't you see that though? Cause I've been in conversations. You ever like get, get emotionally invested in the conversation and you're fighting for something. You're like, why am I even fighting? Why am I even going here fighting for this? You almost forget what it is that you're, I'm very little, up, I'm an that introvert to, that you're up to bad about. Yeah. You don't have I'm any, an introvert. I don't have any of these conversations. <laughs> I don't believe you. Yeah. I don't believe you. I, you know what <laughs> I, I do. And it's been hard for me to learn how to say you're right. Yeah. You know, yeah. it still is. You know, I've had a conversation with a guy on Facebook, which I don't do much of. I've eliminated a lot of people on my Facebook because I, if I can't have a conversation with a person over opposing views, I just, it's unhealthy, right? And uh, he made a comeback and there was some things in, in his rebuttal that indicated to me that the argument was not going to be worth pursuing. Yeah. So I let him win. Social media is so like that though, in a lot of ways, isn't it? Oh, I, yeah. I feel like it's a... It's a bulletin board for how can I craft words to one up you? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, people sit there and you, well, how can I say something? Oh, I got them. You know? Well, how, yeah, but so I'm, I'm more of a comment reader now mm -hmm. than I am contributor. Mm -hmm. Eight years ago, I they was a contributor. They call that a troll. <laughs> yeah. Eight years ago, I was trolling people <laughs> with opinions and my belief systems. And uh. now, like this guy I'm telling you about, I let him win. I'm not going to go back and forth because I read, you know, these people that are spending hours. My ego's bigger than yours. No, yeah. my ego's bigger than yeah. yours. No, my ego's bigger than yours. You can't spell. Yeah. Well, you'd look ugly. Yeah. Look at your family. It's right. like, what? Yeah. What is this? Yeah. What are we doing? Well, think about the things that you could accomplish if you take those energies and channel them elsewhere. You know, that's, and that's kind of where I'm at with my life right now. Yeah. You know, I think I'm nine years into doing what I do now. Um, I get a lot of hate. Really? Oh, man. Like what? Dude, I had some lady try to blast me on ABC's webpage or Facebook. About what? Try to bring my personal you? life into things, which okay. she knew nothing about. Uh -huh. So it was he said, she said. Yeah. Um, it's turned into, I don't talk about Jesus enough anymore. Uh -huh. And I'm all about the money. <laughs> and it's like, wait a minute. Is this somebody you know personally? Just don't like, even yeah. know her. Yeah. Never met her. Yeah. But she's going to take the time to blast me and tell me I'm all about the money and try and bring up things in my personal life that she obviously has no clue about yeah, and degrade my character over a comment I made on ABC that really wasn't degrading. Yeah, This person that broke into a house was right down the street from my house wearing a fake badge. And the, the family said he has a mental illness mm -hmm. and that he thought he was going into his mom's house. One of the other commenters said, I have this guy on my ring, mm -hmm. door, doorbell camera. yeah. yeah. On the other side of town, trying to enter my house at one o'clock, I called the cops. Mm -hmm. Same guy. Wow. Well, the person says there's two sides to every story. Is he's got a mental illness? He's trying to walk into this house that's yeah. not his. He did walk into the house, and I said, "Well, it sounds like there's three sides to the story because somebody on the other side of town has him trying to go into their house." Yeah. Her rebuttal was my personal life. Yeah. I'm all about the money, this, that, and the other, yeah. and it's like you start to experience. When you, when you step away and you say, you know what, I'm going to remove myself from these behaviors and I'm going to focus on my gift. I'm going to focus on my self 
awareness and being happy with myself and yeah. my purpose because I've only got one shot at this and we're not going to change the world with our opinion on Facebook. We're no. going to change the world in what we do yeah. and the actions that we make and take on our daily lives. Yeah. Then you start to actually live it out and these people are like, you're fake. Right. No. Yeah. You don't even know me. <laughs> yeah. It, you can make the same sacrifices that I'm making and do the same things yeah. in your own way with your own gifts. I don't right. know the talents you were given, but you could go do that. Yeah. You know, but now I've just, I've just learned and, you know, have gotten to a point in my life where those opinions as, as much as they may affect me in the short term, I just keep pushing. I think that so much of it is, it's funny because it, it's, uh, it's outrageous. And at the same time, it's so human. Like when I look at it, it, there's so much that's rooted in our psychology. You talk about instincts and how we're created and mm. whether it be the fight or flight thing or how we respond to things. I think there's such a uh, ingrained within our psychology, almost like this great confidence in lack where we think that because other people are getting theirs that we can't get ours. Like there's not enough for everybody. And if somebody else is doing good, that means that I am less. So I need to claw and scratch or yep. degrade them or yep. defame their, their character or pull them down. Yep. You know, that's somehow rooted in, they don't even realize that they're doing it. Well, yeah, because you're, there's a level of ignorance to that, right? A huge. I mean, it's all, it's ignorance. all, it's all ignorance, right? It's, it's their own lack of self-awareness. Yeah. Because anytime, like I say, I'll circle it back. Anytime I do that, I have to stop and ask myself, why did I just do that? Yeah. What is it within myself right. that made me have to do that? Yeah. Because I need to examine that and I need to understand that. Yeah. Because that is stopping me oh, yeah. from whatever level I'm trying to get into. Mm -hmm. I have to learn how to overcome that and recognize that. Yeah. And that's what you've done. You know, I mean, I, I hear that in your story to go back to your story after you get wrapped up then in drugs, mm -hmm. where does that lead you? Within three years committed a home invasion robbery from drugs. So how, how do you draw that correlation drugs to, to home invasion robbery? Oxycontin is heroin. So and you were not sober when you did it? No. Okay. Within three years, I'm a full blown junkie. I hate to use the word, but junkie. Mm hmm. Heroin addict, but pharmaceutical. If you've ever seen prescribed somebody... Prescribed by a doctor or getting on the street? I'm buying them on the street. Okay. But still, doctor drug, pharmacy drug, told to be safe. I didn't know what it was when I first started. Just Oxycontin. Okay. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen somebody coming down from these things or heroin, you would, you would kind of get a better understanding of, okay, this is why people rob pharmacies. This is why people commit home invasion robberies. This is why people are sticking up subways for this stuff. Hmm. Biggest mistake of my life, 21 years old, went into a home three miles from here. With people? Yeah, with people, held them at gunpoint. Wow. And took their prescription medication that was in the house. And that's what—that's the only thing you were it's there the only for. thing I wanted. You said where your, how did you know that they had them? It was one of her friend's moms. Okay. She was getting a high volume of these Oxycontins because the doctors were prescribing them so freely. Yeah. And when we started using these pills, this kid had just said, I got thousands of these at home. Mm-hmm. And started selling them to us for $5 a piece, which was $35. Thousands of these at home? Dude, he showed up with a freezer bag, one third full of Oxycontins the next wow. day. And it was crazy because I, I tell people the story. He dropped the bag and the pills fell everywhere. Hmm. And nobody grabbed him because hmm. we were just getting started. Had that happened six months later, everybody would have went over there like crows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Picking them up, yeah. putting them in their pocket. Yeah. Because you're going to need those. Um 
I was busted six months later. My, I was uh, arrested for that robbery. My parents spent a bunch of money on attorney, me being a white kid from Clovis, star athlete. My yeah. co-defendant's dad was lead robbery squad detective of the Fresno PD. Other co-defendant who's now dead, he died of a drug overdose a few years ago. Um, good family, good attorney. He said three white kids from Clovis, so they gave us a shot. Two, mm. two strikes on their records, one strike on my record. And I said, I'm never using drugs again, but I wasn't ready to change my environment. Yeah. I had too much fear of missing out. You know, I don't know if you could ever remember being mm -hmm. young yeah. and like your parents wouldn't let you go out or you had to go do something with the family, but all your friends were going to this other spot. That anxiety you yeah. felt of like, I can't be alone. Right. I don't know if you had that. Mm -hmm. I had that. Needed so to be around people. And I got a 10 year lid over my head, which mm -hmm. means if I come back, I'm going to go to prison for up to 10 years. My friends were drinking smoking, popping pills. I told myself, I'll just drink. And within 30 days, I got in a fight, knocked this guy's tooth out. Two weeks later, I almost lost my arm, had an infection in my hand, and had to get cut out. When I went to the hospital, they gave me fentanyl, mm -hmm. basically a painkiller, mm -hmm. and a Vicodin prescription. And I went back home, and that Vicodin prescription and fentanyl unlocked everything again. And it was, was right back to it. Yeah, it was really the drinking, you know, mm -hmm. behaviors. Addiction is behavior. Mm -hmm. An addict... Like I said, symptom, drugs, yep. addict, behavior. Mm -hmm. There's behaviors that encompass every addict. Right. That's why I can sit across the table from any addict, have a conversation with them, and have their parents right next to me, and I can tell them he or she's lying. They're not telling the truth. Mm -hmm. This is what's really going on. No, this is what you're doing. Because the manipulation, the deception, the lies, yeah. it's all the same with mm -hmm. an addict, right? We just yeah. have to find the root. What's, where's, where's this coming from? Sexual, sexual abuse related, anxiety related, depression related, something happened that they're self-medicating. Um, so trying to cover up, trying to make better, trying yeah. to reconcile. Yeah. But, and their behaviors are how they're trying to fix themselves. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I, uh, end up back on drugs and then within two years, completely homeless, completely homeless, hmm. six months, no family, no, they gave up on me, kicked me really? out of the house. Yeah. Because of the drug drugs. Use. Yeah. They kicked me out the first time when I came home from San Diego. So before the robbery, I was by myself for three years. I mean, I was with friends and stuff and living with friends. Yeah. Didn't see my family for three years. They came back in my life to try and keep me out of prison, get me back. They thought, you know, we'll get him through rehab. He'll be fixed. That's not the way it works. Yeah. Once they found out I was on drugs again, which was only about six weeks, they kicked me out of the house. Mm. I'm back out on my own. Two years later, Homeless. Do you think that was a good thing for you or a bad thing for you? Great thing for me. Uh -huh. For me. Yeah. For me. Right. Um, stubborn me. I've only met one me in, in you know, it was 12 years mm -hmm. being sober. And it was just recently. Really? Yeah. A kid in Ohio. His dad walked into his room. He was a cop. His dad's a cop. Walked into his room, found his son dead. Wow. Overdosed on fentanyl. Hits him with two rounds of Narcan. Not one, two. Mm-hmm. Gets him to come back to life. He's got to go to treatment. What is that? What is that? You Narcan uh -huh. is a drug, naloxone, that actually reverses overdose okay. effect. Okay, gotcha. In the Midwest and the East Coast, a lot of communities are like, everybody in communities have this stuff because overdoses are happening at such a high rate. Mm -hmm. So we've got this kid who's clearly a drug addict. The dad's like, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, we need to get him into treatment. And I, t and I get on the phone with the guy. The guy didn't even say hello. He's like, look, man, I'm not going to treatment. 
So whatever you got, I don't want to hear it because mm. I don't have a problem. He goes, my dad was overreacting. I was going to wake up. I took the normal amount that I always take. Mm. This isn't a big deal. And I was like, holy cow. I met myself. Yeah. Here's a kid that don't need any help from anybody. When you're an addict, do you really believe that? Like, do you, is it, uh, are you lying? Or do you, is no, that your, rea- is that your reality? So, so when people say, I don't have a problem, they know that they do. It's not that they're, they believe that they don't. Right. They know that they do, but what's behind it? Fear. I can't. I can't feel this. Mm-hmm. I can't change my life because I don't want to feel this. I and it's not that I can't give, give it up as much as I can't live without it. I can't function with, without it. Right. They think, they believe yeah. that the answer is these drugs because it stops the emotional, spiritual deadness that they're experiencing. When does that happen? Because before drug use, I mean, did you think that? I mean, did you think that there was something out there that would make that go away? Behavior. So Acting out in class. Becoming the class clown. Uh-huh. Finding ways to get attention. So it's all rooted in the same. Yeah. Uh-huh. It just becomes the behavior leads you into a substance that now has that physical addictiveness, the mental addiction that comes with it. So it's, all, like I say, behavior. Yeah. Addict, find the drugs, find the alcohol, boom. Yeah. They immediately say, that's the solution. Hmm. This works for me. To cover up the emptiness, the mm-hmm. insecurity. I mean, it's ultimately all fear is what all you're saying. Fear, yeah. So would you say, I mean, that's what, so would you say with any type of addiction, sex addict, people that are addicted to other things? Absolutely. Does it all I think come it's all from, the same. Comes from the, the same place. I think it's all rooted in very similar areas, mm-hmm. you know? Of worth. Is it's it worth? worth is it, it's, it's abuse. It's childhood trying experiences. Trying to cope, with some, cope yeah. with some sort of emotional wound. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, th- these are when I get into blanket statements, 100%. I've never met an addict of any kind that wasn't covering up some kind of emotional experience because there's something there there you think, if you they think, don't you know. know what it is yeah, yeah. so that's what i'm saying they're not when they say like they don't know that they have a because they're not digging deep enough they're not just they're incapable of at that time uh-huh. you can't yeah you know it's like trying to take a person that's never prayed and meditated and saying putting them in this room and saying i want you to be quiet for an hour and i want you to listen to yourself and i want you to hear what God is telling you about yourself. And then you come back in an hour and you'd be like, what did you hear? They'd be like, dude, I don't know. I was thinking about this and thinking about that. And you can't get five minutes out of them. So what for you, for you then, what is the key to, to cracking the case on somebody like that? Is getting them. To, okay. So you won't have to get them into treatment or some kind of sobriety. Yeah. And, and then in that sobriety, you have to get them to understand the removal of themselves from the world. Yeah. What does that mean? Prison was for that for me. Mm-hmm. So f- removing yourself from the world may be shutting out Instagram, shutting out Facebook, uh-huh. turning off all of these uh, commitments. Outside and, voices, outside... I'm going to go to this event this weekend, Instagram okay. posts, okay. Facebook posts, picking up the phone... You've got to start eliminating distractions so you can sit with yourself, so you can be uncomfortable. And from there, anytime you reach a level of uncomfortableness that is going to make you crack, you pick up the phone and you call somebody and you talk about it. For a while, it just seems like you're going to just be not trying to not do what you've been doing, but you're starting to add these components in where I'm going to call somebody instead of do what I always did. Mm-hmm. 
after a while, that white knuckle feeling mm-hmm. settles in, and now you're in a place where you can start focusing on yourself. Once it once you kind of get away from once the, the storm excess, starts to okay. exit, because it'll go away. It may not clear, but it starts to go away where you can actually then take a look at yourself and experience emotions in a singular form. Because you're shutting off all of the outside stuff, which right. would be where that would be everything from where you're getting. Um, I mean, what was that literally where you're getting the, the drugs or whatever it is that you're addicted to, as well as the stuff that from people or relationships that are fueling that thing, when that tie is severed, then you start to awaken yes. internally. And, and right. And so like for me in the beginning, when I was in, uh, when I was in prison, cause I went to prison for mm-hmm. two years, I stopped listening to hip hop music for a long time. Mm-hmm. I love hip hop because I'm of what, it, because hip-hop. of what you felt like it when was. I listened to hip hop. It would bring in drug dealing, it would bring in violence, Mm -hmm. stealing, all of these things that came with old behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I had to say, this is not... So it would start the storm back again. Yes, it would bring the storm back. Mm -hmm. It would start the mind of the thinking, Mm -hmm. right? And we already know that it starts in the mind. As soon as you think it, it becomes your words, then your words become your actions, your actions become your habits, your habits become your character, your character becomes your destiny. Yeah. I had to stop listening to that music. Because I didn't want to bring the storm back. And when you're in the storm, you're experiencing so many different emotions all at once. You don't know what to fe- you don't know what you're feeling. Yeah. When the storm starts to clear, then like I'm saying, you experience those emotions in a singular form. You can now start addressing each emotion one at a time. Okay, my anxiety. If I'm around certain kinds of people, gives me anxiety. I need to stay away from certain kinds of people. If I'm dishonest or if I'm, if I'm dishonest or in acting immorally, mm-hmm. I will be prone to guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. Guilt and shame brings depression. Depression brings paralysis. Mm-hmm. Paralysis brings isolation. Isolation brings thoughts of how do I get rid of this? So these are all processes that I've had to work through. Right. These are all processes that people have to work through, but you can't if you don't remove yourself. It's yeah. It's almost like once you get sober, you have to get sober. Like it's like after you get sober from the narcotics and the stuff that maybe is your addiction, then you got to get like mentally sober. Uh huh. Right. It's almost like spiritually a, is what yeah. we call it. So it's in the it's program. A, it's a in, in what program? Well, in any program. Okay. So, so you can a, do it through celebrate recovery. You can do it through AA, NA. It's we, a spiritual sobriety. Yes. We always you, say it's a, it, it's a spiritual deficiency is our issue. Hmm. There's, people that, there's people that believe it's not a spiritual issue because they want to take it from a scientific point, but Dr. Drew says, and all of the scientific advancements... Dude, Dr. Drew, you remember Loveline? He's still show? the man. He's <laughs> he still the, the man. He's the man. He's still the man. He is the man. What a beast. He uh, he says, and all of the... Because he's one of the leading addiction doctors. He says, and all of the... Dr. Drew is? Yes. In all of the advancements in substance abuse and addiction, the number one form in getting sober and staying sober for long term is AA and NA mm-hmm. still. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's a spiritual problem. Yeah. How do we address the spiritual component? And that freaks people out because God, ooh, I don't know, God, God, no. And it's like that program tries to teach you, don't worry about God. Yeah. Let's get you through certain components of this and then start digesting your misuse of instincts, how you've misbehaved, how we 
convert all of those misbehaviors into spiritual behaviors. And when you're saying when when they're talking spiritual, they're talking the inward you is what they're saying, right? Like the inside, yes, the inside. Honesty. You, you, yeah. Okay. Forgiveness. Yeah. Patience. Mm-hmm. Prayer, meditation. Yeah. Self compassion. Yeah. Compassion for others. These are all spiritual yeah, components. Soul health, spiritual health, the right. inward you. you. You know, I never, I, I didn't do AA or NA until nine years of sobriety. Mm. You were already sober for nine years. Yeah. Before you did that? Mine was all Christ-centered. Mm-hmm. When I read the big book, it's just reworded Jesus. Yeah. That's all it is. Right. Every component that's in that book is right it's out the of the stuff. Process. Yeah. And it, it's, you may not see the word for word, Yeah, but when you really become spiritually aware, you get what Jesus is saying on a deeper level. Yeah. And they're taking the deep levels of what Jesus has said and wording it into a way that addicts can understand apply to their life and be freed from their from their addiction. Which is incredible because I mean it really is helping a lot of people. I mean I, I would agree. I mean you can't you can't uh, debate the results of no people that are helped for that regardless of what religious affiliation that they have. Absolutely. You know what I mean? It's it's so much deeper than that. For for somebody that what do you do when you're dealing with that person maybe in your family? And I'm asking you because you've been there you want help for them so bad. You you try the inter- home interventions. You try the, the everything that you can, but you can't seem to get through. Uh, what is what is the best way for someone to handle those types of situations? Is it? I mean, you talk about your parents going hands off with you. Mm-hmm. You know, well, fine. You're got, you're going to have to you know figure it out on your own. And I mean, yep. people have different opinions on this. What is your take on it? Well, they went hands off, but they also went hands on. Because they had to figure out their own pain and suffering. So they started going to meetings for themselves. Because of their own son that they had yeah. raised. Now he has become an addict. What does that mean about us? Right. Uh. It's like grief groups. You know, families that lose their children. You go to groups of people that have lost family members and have had to work through grief. So they can teach you. So you know that you're not alone. And that this is, these are the emotions you're going to feel. These so, how we process yeah. these emotions. So they went hands off with you, but they had to go hands, hands off with, with, themselves. with themselves, with their grief. What do you say to the person that's trying to, what, what is my role in the life of an addict? I guess is my question. If I have a friend who is an addict yeah. and I am not, and I'm like, they are killing themselves. What is, what is my role in the life of an addict? So I tell people that love and encouragement is always the answer. Uh-huh. No more, than, more than you need to stop this. You need to. Yeah. You want to know why? Because they already know that. Mm-hmm. They're, they are at such a level of shame and guilt and pain within themselves. And wouldn't acknowledge that, correct? No, they don't know it. Uh. They don't know it. But if you can get them to stop and have a conversation and it's out of love, typically they'll break down. If you, but if you say, you need to fix your life, you need to do this, you're, you're putting a wall up. Right. It's no different. You need to change. You right. need to. It's no different than Christians picketing the marriage of gay people. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. just built a wall. Yeah, that's they all hate you're God doing. now. That's, that's all you're doing. They hate yeah. Christ. Right. There's no love in that. Absolutely. There's no understanding in that. Right. So love, because they feel rejected, 100%. and you're basically saying, yeah, are we not rejecting him if we do? Yeah, that? We exactly. are. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what's happening. Right. What are we doing to the female that's having an abortion? Mm-hmm. And we say you're going to go to hell, and this yeah. and that. And it, we're rejecting them. Right. We don't even know their story. Yeah. I'm not saying that, that their their decision is right. But you have no understanding. But you have no understanding. Not, yeah. No empathy. No, Nothing. No human connection. No, Nothing. Yeah. They think that you don't care. You're just judgmental. So we have to make sure when a family member or friend is on drugs or an alcoholic that they don't feel that judgment from us. Mm-hmm. They feel love 
and they feel compassion, empathy, and encouragement. What does that look like for you? I don't know. I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. Worked with a family. Their daughter is 19 years old now. Got her into treatment at uh, 17, right before she was 18. She left the treatment center. She's, uh, her behavior is very erratic, impulsive. She told me one time about her father raping her hmm. every day at 14 years old. Gosh. If I judged her, she would have never told me that. Yeah. And if she would have never told me that, I would have never understood what she was running from, right? She's still not doing good. But she called me the other day. She got in trouble and she had to go to court. And she's like, you know, do you know any attorneys, this, that, and the other? And I just asked her, you know, what's going on? I'm doing this. Okay, well, what drugs are you using, you know? I'm doing this. It's okay. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and she's like, you know, like I need an attorney. I was like, well, you know, that's going to cost you money. And like, are your parents going to pay for that? And she's like, yeah, no, they don't want to pay for it. And I was like, well, what are you going to do? And she goes, well, I don't want to go to court. Hmm. And I was like, well, you don't have to go to court, but you're going to pay some way. Yeah. Eventually you're going to pay. She goes, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're going to pay the pipe. You're going to pay the price on the street or you're going to pay the price in court. Mm-hmm. Paying the price on street, on the street, you're going to get robbed, raped, killed. Yeah. God forbid you get killed. You pay the price in court, you have to address your emotional issue. You're going to feel all that pain emotionally because you're going to get sober and not want to be sober. Yeah. I go, but eventually you're going to pay a price. I'm not trying to tell her what to do with her life. Right. But before we end, I say, you know, you can call me whenever you want mm-hmm. when you're ready. All I need her to do is know that my phone line's open. Yeah. Because something might happen to her today, and she's going to know who to call. Yeah. Who are you in that person's life? Right. You want them to call you. Right. You don't want them to feel ashamed to call you, guilty to call you, that you're going to be judged if they call you. You want them to know that you will open your arms and say, we love you. Let's do this. Do you feel like that it, it, there, it is, there is a journey to being ready to give up on addiction? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there, what, I mean, some people, I guess, would call that like a rock bottom or something like that. Does that, is that real? That's real. Uh The problem is progressives, and there's nothing wrong with progressives, but some progressives believe, oh, no, 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 no. We cannot let people hit rock bottom. That is just not the answer. Well, hold on, Sally, Joe, and Mary. Yeah. Nobody said that rock bottom has to be at Skid Row in LA. Yeah. Most rock bottoms for me when I do interventions is, the kids in college can't stop using pills and recognizes that if he keeps going, he's going to lose his scholarship. He's yeah. not going to get a job and he's going to lose his family support. Yeah. That's rock bottom. Yeah. I can't, we don't choose who's rock bottom is. No. And rock bottom is, I mean, I would almost. It's emotional. Yeah. And it's, the, it's almost like it's the birthplace of like your own internal awakening where you start to come out of it or you start to, to see a little bit of, okay like almost like a path towards reconciliation, redemption, coming out of whatever it is 100% that you're in. You will, I, I, I think it's impossible to see the clarity of life without standing in a moment where you feel like you've completely lost control and hope in life. Yeah. And once you reach that moment and you decide that you're not going to give up, life changes. What, how, how do people reach that moment? And the reason I ask Let is... It. Be- so, so that's what I'm saying, though. So it is, it's almost like its own path. I mean, is it, is it, because you, we've all had, 
experiences and you've said on, I mean I've said on both sides of the table of this conversation where you're the person that needs help or you're the person that's wanting to help mm. and there's that t- that place that you hit where it's almost like a wall like we can't get through we can't get through and it doesn't matter how much we talk it doesn't matter how yep. much we cry it doesn't matter any words that are coming out of their mouth I know that there's a barricade and you're not getting in mm-hmm. and nothing is changing and then you eventually have that moment where it like starts to crack and you start to see mm-hmm. you're saying that that path does exist. What do you think brings you, what, what causes the, the unbreaking? You say, let it, is it just, it's got to run its course? Yeah. You have to let it happen. Right. Because we can try and manipulate ourselves out of situations and orchestrate, you know, mm-hmm. outcomes, lying, cheating, and stealing, Yeah, lying, cheating, and stealing. Yeah. Eventually, you get so sick of lying, cheating, and stealing. Mm-hmm. You say, "I give up." Yeah, it's almost like you, like it like you your body knows that it works against you. Yeah, it, you know unfortunately, I mean? though, it's not that way for everybody. Like what? Like if you're some a, people die in active addiction. Uh, some people are unwilling to let go uh-huh. and let it happen, and that's where I say, I, I just what wish, keeps those people from? I don't know, but yeah. I wish I knew. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's homeless people. I had a guy on Facebook post a meme. This was one of the, the guy that made the comment where I was like, this isn't going to go anywhere. Um, basically, the meme said that this girl's dream was to become the president of the United States so she could help homeless people and people without money. And this guy says, who's a friend of the daughter's family, says, well, you don't have to be the president to do that. You can come to my house and pull some weeds, mow my lawn, and I'll give you $50, and you can go out and give that to a homeless person. And the girl says, well, why doesn't that homeless person just come over and do the work and you pay him? And the meme says, welcome to the Republican Party. Hmm. And it's just such an oversimplification and such a gross stereotype for homeless people because I want to know what happened to the homeless person. Right. How did they get I don't there? care about lazy. Right. I don't care about job. I care about what happened. What happened to you when you were younger? Something happened. You were in foster care. You went through five homes. You never felt love. You never had discipline. You never had structure. You don't know how to put a resume together. You don't know how to go in and hear no from an employer and then have the courage to go walk into another one and hear no. 1500 more times before you get the job that you're supposed to get Mm -hmm. something happened to you when you were younger sexual abuse i always bring that up because it's so common with addicts yeah what happened that's that's what i want to know because you don't just end up in that situation some people choose it sure yeah but that's not the case for everybody yeah it's what happened that's that's what i want to know so what happened to the drug addict they couldn't stop Something bad. Something so bad that they couldn't give up the shame. They couldn't give up the guilt. They couldn't let go of blaming themselves. They couldn't let go of believing that nobody would love them because they never had it when they were young. It wasn't their teacher. It wasn't their mom. It wasn't their dad. It wasn't their uncle because their uncle touched them. Their mom touched them. Their dad touched them. Their dad was never home. He was a drug addict. He was in prison. What was it that they couldn't let go? I don't know. But it was something. When you can identify what the something is, how do you help people rec- reconcile that? Is it through programs? Is it through treatment? Uh huh. Clinical therapy. Yeah. Spiritual. Get to church. And give back. Yeah. And don't stop. What role is it? You know, we talk about 
the so that it's pretty clear that the person on the addict side of the table, the person who's trying to help the addict, it seems like they both have a part to play in oh, some 100%. ways, right? I mean, so it's not just a, it's not just a complete the addicts got to figure it out on their own. They need coaches, right? They 100%. need they need people to say, "Hey, a better life is possible. Hey, you don't have to stay here." Hey, yep. You know, 75% of the time when I'm working with youth uh-huh. that are on drugs and I would say youth under the 18 to 25, the reason they can't get sober is because of their family. Because their family's wrapped up in it or the, or the their codependent are, behavior, uh-huh. enabling behavior is so disgustingly sickening in my mind. Yeah. And they're unwilling to accept their role in that person's addiction. Is it because it's their kids and they can do no wrong? Or is it because they don't know what to do and so they just decide to go with the... For example, or, worked with a family out of New Jersey. Kid had a $3 million trust. He lived in Vin, uh, Venice Beach parents pay for everything hmm. i say why would he stop using drugs if you pay the rent pay for his groceries and spend 500 dollars a month in uber yeah what's why would he stop there's no reason for him to. there's no reason for him to you're helping him continue stop paying rent stop paying for his phone stop paying for his uber why is that so hard for for parents i mean that's 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 a story you hear all the time and this is where i can't give you an answer i'm not a parent i know what i feel for my nephews and that's a pretty strong feeling like I would step in front of a car, no problem. And those are my nephews. If that was my kid, you can't feel, you can't see them feel pain. Yeah, I would imagine I, that they're. Fear I don't know. Of, I'm trying to to think too, because I am a parent, and I think of you know if my kids were on drugs. I just don't. I mean, to be able to, I mean, it maybe it has something to do with how they're wired, how the parents are wired, you know, mm-hmm. psychologically. I mean, my parents did it. They enabled they, you. No, they, they they cut it off. Yeah, yeah. It's the best so thing so that yeah. Ever so it's the, it's the you know it's the yin and yang. Yeah, in a lot of ways. you just like have, you have to, parents that you have. To, I don't want to say man up because we got toxic masculinity <laughs> nowadays, but man up. Yeah, and you make the hard decisions. And you're saying step up to the plate, and you got to be able to. Yeah. What role does does uh, does awareness play in this whole conversation? Is awareness important? Which part of awareness? Making making it known that there is an issue. I mean, like, I wonder how is it is it helpful? You know, it's like uh, you. This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Do those things? It's so. This is where, in terms of like getting people to not make those decisions, uh-huh. this is my belief. Blanket statement: empowerment is the answer. Empowerment defined not education. Okay, empowerment. So I created the Free Will Project, which was a God-given order to me. He told me to do four things when I was in prison: race my bike professionally go to the Olympics, start a nonprofit organization and become a speaker and tell your story. Mm -hmm. The idea behind the free will project, which I started was I don't want to teach kids drugs are bad. Yeah. I want to empower kids to use their gifts. Yeah. And in the, in the realm of empowerment, they would be given the ability to say, I don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. This is what I want from life. Not this. So would you say, so then when we talk about like um, pharmaceutical medications, do you think that the awareness part of, hey, we got a problem here is not important? That part is important. Okay. Hey, we got a now, problem here. Now, is important. Uh, so teen t- prevention on a t- awareness for teens, mm-hmm. it's empowerment. Focus answer. on, hey, your life can be this if you'll... Adult awareness in that, look, these medications are extremely dangerous and these medications can unlock addictions in lives. Mm -hmm. And at this moment in time, we don't have tests outside these ones that are coming up that can say this person may be prone to addiction. So 
when you go to have a procedure done for Tom, Tim, and Sally, try non-narcotic first. Don't go straight to narcotics because we don't want to introduce these substances and create a problem that we could have dodged. Yeah. Had we had we known and specifically because you talk about the people with you know what you're calling the the, the g- genetics that lead to addiction you're mm-hmm. rolling you're rolling the dice is what you're saying that's right? exactly I mean, what i say in my speech to kids you're rolling the dice yeah I, ta- I tell them there's a doorway that exists yeah and there's a lot of things on the other side of this door but when i come in to speak it's drugs yeah. when you walk through the door for drugs you don't get to just turn around and walk back out that's not the way it works but when you walk through that door you're rolling the dice and you're saying that numbers are not going to come up on my numbers. So that means I'm going to walk through the door and I'm going to freely walk back out. I don't know many people that have done that. Most have walked through and found themselves stuck on the other side. Still, they're either dead, in jail, or can't quit their activities. Is there such thing as, as, uh, as good addiction? What I'm meaning is you have people that are addicted to drugs. You have other people that, I mean, they're addicted to their careers. They're addicted mm-hmm. to work. I'm addicted to helping people now. Uh-huh. So you would say that there are mm-hmm. good addictions. I don't know. A psychologist might say that's yeah. not, a, not a good addiction. And I, and yeah. I, would, I would challenge them because uh-huh. I love therapy. Yeah. I would challenge their, their belief on that, and I'd try and hear them out. But uh, you'd have a hard time telling me that what I do now is a, So unhealthy. the nature of negative addiction would be that it keeps you from you know, the potential life that you could have. Could you, could you, could a good addiction also keep you from the life that you could have? You know, whether it be, you know, family or whether it be whatever, because you're just so in the work. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you even now as someone who, man, you're not addicted to the drugs, but you say you're addicted to to helping people, which most people, that would be a noble thing. Mm -hmm. How do you, keep that gene or that behavior in a position where you still feel like you can flourish and have all the things that you want in your life. So I would say that my measurement of success right now is inner peace. Mm -hmm. It's happiness. Right. It's not a bank account. It's not real estate. It's not how many speaking engagements I get. It's do I go to sleep and do I wake up at peace? Mm -hmm. And if I am, I'm successful. If I'm not, and the scale starts to teeter one way, what I already know what's going to happen. Yeah. Anxiety. First thing that happens. Yeah. And I have to say, why is the scale tipping? Yeah. What am I doing? I need to cut some things out and get the scale back. So for me, I'm addicted to helping people, but there's also a scale when I have to say, okay, yeah, it's time for me. Because you have an anchor. Yeah. Your anchor is that inward, you know. Yeah. I talk, was talking with, uh, I don't know if you know, Alan, Alan Autry. He lives here in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was talking with him one time and I said, how do you define success? And he just immediately was like, success is finding peace in your life. It is like, and that, that stuck with me ever since that he's, he said that success is finding peace in your life. When you have that as, as your anchor, you're saying for you, that's how that helps you kind of know how you're doing. Yeah. Right. That's, that's like my pressure, my air pressure gauge. Mm -hmm. As soon as it goes low, the meter goes off. Got to evaluate. Yep. Why am I going low? Am I not giving enough? Am I not helping enough? If it gets too high, then I get anxious, right? Mm-hmm. Depression's low, anxiety is high. Mm-hmm. And when I feel anxiety, what do I need to cut out? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to focus you're on too myself? High, too high I'm strong. too high strung. If I'm depressed, I'm too still. Right. Right? If I'm, and I'm naturally paralyzed. Paralyzed or isolating. Uh-huh. If I'm too still, I'm focusing on the past, depression's in the past, 
shame, guilt, and I'm kind of letting those things build back up. Yeah. So what do I need to do? I need to get out and help. Right. I need to get out of myself and I need to become, go to meetings, give to somebody that's in recovery, you know, help at a church, whatever that is. So I have that scale now of, I know what peace feels like. I know what stillness or serenity feels like. And now anxiety and depression are now my, my scales from left and right. Where did your, uh, I guess, awakening for lack of a better term happen in prison? No, I had a friend. So this is good. So this is post-prison before? This is before prison. Before prison. Okay. So I get a phone call from a kid friend, Adam, in 2006. Mm -hmm. He says that God gave him a vision and that I was in this vision and that I was going to get three significant chances. If I didn't stop doing what I was doing before these chances took place. He just place, called you out of nowhere and just... Hadn't talked to him in years. And he was he like, didn't I even just live, had this... Didn't even live in town. Told me wow. the cops were watching my apartment. Saw all this in the vision. My house got raided shortly after that. Um, he, I was going to get three significant chances. And if I didn't stop doing what I was doing before these chances took place, I was going to go to prison. Mm -hmm. He said, the cops are watching my house. How would I know this? I don't even live in Fresno anymore. I'm in San Diego. I can just stop. And I was like, bro, I'm on these pills. I can't stop. You know how it is. Like, I don't know how to stop. Well, excuse me, that was in 2005 when he called. In the fall of 2006, I was pulled over three times in four days. Hmm. I was pulled over at Clovis and Belmont and they thought I did a drug deal, but I didn't. So they pulled me out of the car cause I was on felony probation for the robbery from 2005. And I had this needle stashed between my butt cheeks. So when they searched me, they didn't find it. They let me go. The next night I get pulled over out by tower district. Mm -hmm. And I was with a kid, a taillight was out, cop pulled us over. It was Thanksgiving night about 1030. I put these 64 pills between my butt cheeks. They pulled me out of the car because I lied about being on probation. And they didn't find the pills, but the cop puts me in the back of the cop car. He wants to arrest me. It's Thanksgiving night at 1030, my probation officer didn't answer the phone, so he couldn't violate me. So he goes, it's your lucky night, Mr. Hoffman. Get out of the car. Wow. The next day, nothing happens. The following day, I get pulled over by Fresno State, going by Cedar by the Bulldog Apartments. There was two cops. You know the cops in the college mm -hmm. areas, they like, park next to each other and talk to each other, yeah. but it was on Cedar. So we passed by these cops and I remember we get through Shaw on Cedar and then I see the lights behind us and I'm like, what the heck? Yeah. We pulled over, you know, so many times. Well, the cop comes up <laughs> to the driver and she says, do you know the tags are fake on this car? We borrowed this car from this guy we knew. And she says license and registration. She didn't have a license on her. Uh, turns out the car hadn't been registered in five years wow there was no insurance the construction paper it was construction paper for tags she gives us a fix-it ticket doesn't tow the car gives us a fix-it ticket mm. and says take this car home to the owner right now i had drugs on me yeah a hundred needles in a backpack she had drugs on her were you dealing at this time oh yeah okay I was, by the way, this is like right before I went to jail. I went to jail at 146 pounds. Wow. I'm 170 pounds right now. Hmm. I don't look like I should be like given a fix-it ticket yeah. and yeah. take this home. This car in the area that we were in should have been confiscated. Yeah. <laughs> Names should have been ran. So when she gives us the fix-it ticket and she goes back to the car, I just, bam. I was like, I think that was the three chances that Adam was talking about. <laughs> And she goes, what do you mean? I was like, Adam said that God gave him a vision 
and I was going to get three significant chances. And I was like, I've been pulled over three times in four days. Mm. And I go, every time I should have been arrested. And I was like, I think I'm going to prison. And she's like, ah, whatever. January 21st, 2007, I went to a church in Southeast Fresno. I was invited there by a drug dealer that I was working with in West Fresno in the project. He invited you to church? Yeah, he was a minister, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. You were working with him selling drugs? Uh, Yeah. And he was a minister? Yeah. (laughs) You need to do a movie. I know. (laughs) But now let me ask you this. If Moses was sitting here right now and he said that God came to him in a flaming bush, what would you say? (laughs) I would say I've never seen a flaming bush. (laughs) Right, right? (laughs) There would be so much more conversation. I know, I know, I know, right? (laughs) But my point there is, is God used a flaming bush to reach Moses and he used a drug dealing minister to get to me. It couldn't have been a white person from Clovis, that's for sure. Because at that point, that time. Isn't that crazy? And isn't that crazy how, I I always talk to people about this. It's like, there's this scripture in the Bible, if you're someone who, you know, believes in the Bible, where it talks about if you make your bed in hell, he's there. It's this picture of wherever you go, it doesn't matter how far you run or what you're mm-hmm. doing. Like God's, God's, God's arguably working more in your life when you're a mess and falling apart. Oh, 100%, you know because I mean? what's he trying to do? Yeah, exactly. There's no other name under the sun where those men must be saved. Yeah. That means everybody. Which is which is just so cool. Yeah, I mean, that's why God's so awesome. Absolutely. So okay, so you go with the drug dealing yes. preacher. To January twenty first, church, two thousand and seven. I walk into the church. You guys all know where it's at. If you've ever seen the wall that says "Please stop painting on our church," God is watching. Uh-huh. Bust a right down that street, and there's a Calvary Temple in there. I was probably and two other white people were in there. Uh-huh. Pentecostal church. Don't remember anything about the service. Was told to go up to the altar call. Social anxiety says, no, I'm not going up there. I don't want to be the center of attention. The wife says, get up there. So I go up there. Guy lays his hands on my forehead, and I'll never forget it. I couldn't stop crying instantly. Guy didn't even say anything yet, and I just started crying. And you were sober at this at this no. point? So you were not sober? No, I was not sober. <laughs> but I mean, so I'm you at were, the bottom. So you were on drugs as you were at the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says that... God has favored me my entire life and everything that I'd done. Uh-huh. And I just started crying. And I was just like, I believe, I believe this is real. This is real. I can't believe this is real. Mm-hmm. And he says, you don't have to worry anymore. God's going to remove you from your addiction. And I just kept crying and crying and crying. And like the minister guys that were right next to him, they were crying. And I Who was, was just praying for you. The, the preacher, the drug dealing preacher and the drug dealing minister and his two other buddies. I don't, they could have been pimps. I don't know what they were. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't care though. Who cares? Right? No. Cause it was, it was, it was real. real. Yeah. And, um, like I said, I think God's working through everybody, Yeah, anybody and everybody. It's yeah. not just people that have been sanctified. Yeah, absolutely. Set apart. Yeah. You know, it's not just the Isaiah's of, yeah. of, of that are on God's work. It's yeah. everybody and anything these podcasts usually the people you wouldn't think are the exactly the people that yeah god can use those yeah you know it's uh he'll harden the hearts of whom he chooses and he'll his purpose is his purpose yeah. right he the pharaoh was at work for god yeah so i just remember this overwhelming acceptance of god and in that moment it was like i felt where i was going it was like i could see it and i was like i gotta get out of here going as in where to a place that I didn't want to be. Like prison? No. Where? Spiritually. Okay. Locked up forever. 
I felt it. What you, if you didn't, if something didn't happen, you saw where you're going. Yep. Okay. And I saw where everybody else, a lot of people were going mm -hmm. and I, I, it was a feeling and I instantly, I was like, okay, I thought I'd been cured because yeah. I'm going to be removed from my addiction. So fine. Thank God. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I really didn't at that time. But a couple hours later, I was in a pickup shooting heroin and I was like, oh, I guess it wasn't a miracle like I thought. Mm. Broke into a house that night. It was up for rent, cedar and knees. And I woke up at 2 p.m. the next day with four cops with the guns drawn. And Broke in there to sleep or what? Yeah. Oh. I knew if I slept on the street that night, I was going to die. It was too cold. It was in the 20s. I didn't have anything to, you know, sweatshirt and jeans. Yeah. That's not enough to keep you warm. So I remember getting in the back of the cop car and it hit me. God was going to remove me from my addiction. Mm. And I just had this overwhelming sense of peace. Like, it's all right. This is going to be okay. Yeah. And from that day forward, I became a student. I didn't want to teach anymore. I was done. Yeah. I don't know anything anymore. Teach me. Yeah. Teach me what you know. Teach me what you know. Teach me what you guys know. Because I don't know everything. Was that just like a moment of like enlightenment? Yeah. Where, 100%. Like, like somebody flipped a switch. Yeah. Because I realized when I felt where I was going, I was going there because I was choosing it. Yeah. I was making the choice to go against the grain. Yeah. And so now when I recognize, holy crap, there is a grain. Yeah. I need to start going with it. I don't know how to go with it. So what do I do? Started ripping through the Bible. Mm. Ripping through the Bible. And along the way, God placed people in my life through prison that, I mean, I, I feel like I'm pretty versed in the Bible. I don't read it as much as I used to. Were you raised around faith, Bible? Were you raised around any of that? No. So what was your first encounter with that? Jan that? January 21st, 2007. So at that church with the... Yep. A real encounter. I mean, I'd gone to a service before. But, but before that, you're unfamiliar with the Bible, really. You're unfamiliar with... Everything about it. Yeah. Nothing about it. I mean, I was blown away when I started reading the Bible. Hmm. You know, as you get through like Deuteronomy and you started reading all the stuff and I'm like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? All of the, it's all right here. <laughs> like this is it. Yeah. Like it's in plain English. Hmm. Like you do this, this is what happens. You do this, this is what happens. Like hmm. all the spiritual orders of everything of how we keep our lives at least standing up on two feet, so yeah. to speak. It's in the Bible. It doesn't mean that it's not going to, you're not going to have your trials, right? It rains on the just right. and the unjust alike. Mm -hmm. But to get through and to have peace and help other people and actually live the life that we're supposed to live, it's in that book. Right. So you're in, you're in prison. What happens from there? Um, got in a few fights. It was a struggle. May 17, 2007 is my sobriety date because... I went in January, uh, beginning of February, May 17th, my sobriety date, 2007, yeah. because getting in fights, got a winemaker cellmate, we're getting drunk each week, you know, so I was still, but I had my faith component now. Yeah. I was just trying to shake the cobwebs, which is, I try to tell people relapse can be a part of recovery. Right. Because they want to get sober, they make a mistake, and they find out, ah, yeah. I didn't want to do that, and they get it back. Yeah. And then they just learned why they re relapsed. And then they move forward. They might relapse again. And then they learn why they relapsed. They'll get it. Yeah. As long as they're making an effort, keep pushing them to that. To the journey. To keep the journey, right? The journey, yeah. So my beginning journey is kind of filtering all that yeah. out. I get in a few fights and then I realize, you know what? 
I'm telling my parents I'm in here changing. I'm making wine. I just get in trouble. I'm fighting. These people don't care about me in here. I'm done. No more nothing. Got moved to the gym, and one of my neighbors was kind of pressuring me, you know, to to go to the chapel. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to go because I'm afraid that I won't experience what I experienced in Southeast Fresno because mm-hmm. that was real. The other places that I've gone haven't been a real experience, and I need that real experience. Mm-hmm. But I went, and it was like even better. Mm-hmm. It was so weird. Really? Every time I went in there, I felt like they were talking to me. Yeah, And I'm sure people listening can relate yeah. to that when yeah. a service is speaking directly to you. Yeah, I think... What may make me different than other people in some areas, and hopefully other people aren't different in this, is that when I heard those voices talking to me through those sermons, yeah, I did exactly what I was hearing. You know, mm-hmm. I just kept hearing the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, and I was like, wait a minute! Like, I knew I was supposed to get back on my bike. That was the first vision God gave me. And how old are you at this it. time? 23. So you're 23, and you, you're wanting to get back into BMX at that. That was, I felt that. In February at Wasco State Prison, uh-huh. I told my parents, I wrote them a letter. They wouldn't write me at first, but I was like, I'm, I need to get back on my bike. God's telling me to get on my bike. Then when I got to Tatchby State Prison, the main line, and I started going to the chapel, I kept hearing the kids, the kids, the kids. And I remember I went to I went to the chapel to meet with the, the pastor. And I was like, I don't know what's going on, but here's the cover of this magazine that I was on. God's telling me I'm supposed to get on my bike. And I know it. This isn't a joke. Like, I'm, I'm, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I go, but now I'm coming in here and I just keep hearing, it's the kids, it's the kids, it's the kids, it's the kids. And I'll never forget it. He said, God wants you to create a program for kids. This was like, who said that? In your, the pastor. In your heart? Oh, the pastor said that to you. And he goes, you need to think about that. Huh. And I remember the service that Sunday, he was in the middle of his service and he stopped and he pointed at me. And he was like, God is preparing thousands of kids for your ministry right now. If you don't root yourself in the word and get into church within 48 hours of you paroling prison, you're coming back. And I I knew he was right. You believed him. I knew it. He was right. And I went back to my bunk and then this guy comes up to me and he goes, I've been here for five years and I've never seen the pastor stop an individual, speak to one individual Mm -hmm. like he did to you. He goes, there's something different about you, dude. And I remember the moment after that, I read my favorite Bible verse, which is Hebrews eleven six, And you must believe that he is who he mm-hmm. says he is. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Mm-hmm. God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I just knew that I needed to keep digging. Yeah. And that I told God, you're, you're going to get sick of rewarding me because mm-hmm. I'm going to chase after you and I'm never going to stop. And whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to go do it. Yeah. And it wasn't about the rewards. Yeah. It was just about wanting to finally just have that peace in my life and know that it's not about heaven or hell. It's just about this moment that I have here to live in this body that you're looking at. And I wanted peace. And I wanted to help people, that compassion and empathy, you know? Yeah. And so I did. That's what I did. I chased after him. And then I came up with the Free Will Project name while I was in there. I got transferred from Tatchby State Prison after nine months to Avenal. And I met an African-American gentleman named Toby Wade, who became the biggest mentor of my life. Mm. Um, he was always reading the Bible. 
And I just had all these questions. I didn't know how to, I mean, it, you can't learn alone. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. feel like it's impossible. Yeah. So I have these questions. I start asking this guy these questions and just like I am in school, he gives me an answer and I'm like, are you sure? Like I'm reading this and it just doesn't make sense. Like yeah. your answer doesn't seem right. Yeah. He's like, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> well, he, he, his dad is a preacher. His brother is a preacher. The dad's dad was a preacher. The entire family's in ministry. Yeah. He's been raised in it. So I wake up one morning to this on my bunk and it's Toby. And I look at him and he goes, get up. And I was like, why? And he goes, we're studying. And I was like, okay. We studied for like six hours a day for 13 months. Mm -hmm. Read the entire Bible with them out loud. Bible dictionaries, concordances, studied the dates of kingdoms, studied the entire Exodus, understood that, went into the New Testament, made sure that I understand, you know, how to tie the laces between the yeah. old and the new and understood who was being spoken to, why they were being spoken to. He called me young Timothy. That was his thing, young Timothy. He still mm. calls me young Timothy today. And he told me one time, he said that, that God is going to put a community of people on your back and you have to know his word to do this. And again, I believe him, you know? I felt like something was different about me. Yeah. But I felt that when, when my, or my volleyball coach said, Tony, don't you want to be a champion? Yeah. I knew I was different. But then, then I didn't, didn't want to be it, yeah. I didn't want to be different. And for those of you who are listening, I'm not saying I'm different and boasting. I'm saying you're different too. Yeah. But we choose to accept the difference that God made us. Yeah. You know. And for you, it was more internally being willing to accept that and be okay with that. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And 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 not care what people think, because I'm here for a very specific reason. I'm going to live those reasons out. Yeah. So you in prison, you decide you want to get back into BMX. You also, so this, you have this dream for this other program that mm -hmm. you started. Mm -hmm. Also, the Olympics come into play somewhere, right? Yeah, because I'm going to make it to the Olympics as just, a racer. Just where did that come from? God's going to take me to the Olympics so I can tell people. And it just, just out of nowhere, you just had that thought, that idea. It needs to happen. You. It was like, it needs to happen. It needs to happen. Those three things? And telling my story. And telling your story. I didn't, th th what I didn't understand was that the telling the story was actually going to be my platform, not the Olympics. Mm, that's what was going to get you there? No, just so you I felt that God wanted the Olympics as my stage. Uh, okay. I'm going to put you on this stage. Now people are going to listen. Yeah. What I didn't realize was, is that actually God wanted me to go to a underwhelming hardware store and buy a hammer that's only going to work for about six weeks. And I'm going to have to bang a hammer and build my own stage. And as I do better, go get better hammers and better equipment and build a stage. Yeah. Um, I got out of prison. I raced BMX professionally for three years. I made it to the Olympic level. And you were doing really well at that point. I took third place at my first race. Hadn't touched a bike in seven years. Yeah. I got back on a bike five months after I got out of prison. Hmm. My parole officer told my mom I was going to go back to prison and it was going to be her fault for believing this stuff. Really? Five months after I take third place. That first year I won five races, moved up to the Olympic level. Made six main events at the Olympic level my first year as an elite pro. Mm -hmm. Blew my knee out at the end of 2011. And it's a, at that point, you're thinking it's over. It's over. It was. My racing. Yeah. But I started my nonprofit organization in 2012. I decided that I wanted to stay in the sport and coach athletes. Which, what is your nonprofit called? Tell Free Wheel Project. Okay. Free Wheel Like a Car mm -hmm. Project. Okay. Look it up, freewheelproject.org. Okay. I felt like the free wheel is the part on the bike that when you stop pedaling, 
It allows you to coast, but yeah. free will is what God gave everybody. So it's kind of a play on words. And what all do you do? We have summer camps and after school programs. And the things that we do are we have an educational component that focuses on attitude, choice making, respect for others, community service, substance abuse, abuse prevention, personal banking. Hmm. We pay them every week and we teach them how to balance their, their money, awesome. spend, save, and yeah. share. And at the end of the program, they actually purchase their own equipment from us. Wow. And then now they've been empowered to use the stuff that we gave them, the tools that we gave them to go into the community and stay out of trouble with the thing that saved my life. So awesome. So you start the, so you, you do the BMX thing, your knee, you blow your knee out. It's over your BMX career is Racing's over. over yeah. You, you start this, this nonprofit. I start coaching in 2012. And you start coaching uh -huh. other BMX riders. Yep. yep. Okay. And then from there. I uh, started speaking in 2010. Okay. But just small groups. Yeah. 2012 yeah. though, my, now my story is catching wind. I think I'm actually good at speaking. And so I'm speaking at every Clovis school. It's got an opportunity to give 36 presentations at wow. different Fresno Unified schools. And fast forward to 2016 became one of the most sought after substance abuse speakers in the country. Mm. So it's not local anymore. It's all across the country. I coached three national champions, two world champions. My nonprofit went from raising $2,500 in a year to over $120,000 a year. Mm. And, uh, I made it to the Olympics. So, okay. <laughs> and I also made it to the Olympics. So at the point that your knee is blown out though, are you thinking that the Olympic thing's probably not going to happen? hundred percent. Okay. So, it's okay. So, the, and I think that's a big thing of people's journey. You know, you set these goals or these dreams, or you think that you have these yep. inward things that come from, we would say they come from God, right? These yep. things that, man, I thought God really wanted me to do that. Yep. And now it's over. How, how did you deal through that process thinking that it was, that it was over? Um, so I did have it, a podcast did it, on Did this. it frustrate you? Well, hundred percent. Yeah. Wouldn't it frustrate you? <laughs> yeah. <it would> frustrate <laughs> I was me. frustrated, bro. <laughs> I have a podcast called Persistent Flexibility. Okay. And I believe it's a big culprit to why people aren't successful is because we draw up in our mind what we want our life to look like. Uh -huh. And God will support those visions. Yep. But we don't get to choose how God brings that vision to pass or if it's going to be the complete vision you saw. Right. So I saw myself going to the Olympics. I blew my knee out. Clearly, I wasn't going to go. Yeah. But I told myself through this micro process that I had developed in prison of waking up, brushing my teeth, making my bed, organizing my stuff, and taking care of the little things that as long as I did that, God would sort everything else out. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to become so stringent in my thinking that success had to be the Olympics as me and an athlete. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's not going to work. I'm still going to be persistent, make my bed, organize my stuff take care of the small things. Mm -hmm. The flexibility comes in that, God, I'll let you choose how to tie this together. Yeah. Coaching presented itself as an opportunity, but it presented itself as an opportunity because I had that flexibility in my mind to say, I don't need to be in control. Yeah. This doesn't have to work out exactly the way I want it to work out. So I got into coaching and that wasn't easy because mm -hmm. nobody wanted me to coach them. Who wants an ex-convict? that just got out of prison two years prior to this to coach him. Nobody. What do I know? But I actually did know some things, and I was very good with technology because 
me being at the beginning of the millennial stuff, I was tinkering with computers and building networks in my room mm -hmm. when I was in high school. That's why I went off to be a network administrator. So all of these Gen X coaches that don't know how to work Windows and Mac and build networks and just have this tinkering mindset, they also don't want to work with technology devices for training. Yeah. But technology devices for training are actually very effective in making us better coaches and giving us the ability to make smarter decisions that give us better performance for athletes. So I was learning all of this stuff in the short period of time that I was out. I just needed to be, get people to trust me. So I just trained people for free. I'll wow. train you for free. And that's where it started. Yep. And once I got results out of that person, I'll train you for free. Then I became worth money. Then once I became worth money, then I had world champions want me to coach them. National champions want me to coach them. Some of the top pros coached several Olympians. Gosh. What you know, a, what a ride. same with speaking though. Yeah. Just starts out small. I don't need money. Yeah. I just want to tell my story. I never, I'm still not too good for the work. Yeah. I love stuff like this. Yeah. I don't need to be paid for this. Yeah. This is just me putting the message into the universe, yeah. telling God we're doing this. And then it creates a space for you. Huh? Yep. What, what time is it right now? Uh, oh, it's 3.40. I, I, Will you text Elaine for me? Because somebody's supposed to get my son, and my wife is going to kill me from school. <laughs> and it just came to me right now, and I'm like, oh, crap. I got it. We've been going for a while. We should leave yeah. this on the podcast, because this is real life. It is. This is real life. I forgot to get my child from school. This is such and, a, uh, a man thing. And my wife is at home, and she doesn't even have a car to go get him. So I, to I was send him an Uber. Elaine. <laughs> I'm going to send him an Uber right now. <laughs> just have her call Ashley and work that out. And then we'll... Uh, when you're when you okay so like i'm thinking about this whole olympic thing did did it was it immediate that you thought well i'll coach at the olympics no because i couldn't get anybody to let me coach him yeah but then when brooke came to me i was like i can do we're gonna do this and that's who you coached she, she, yeah I, I she has the potential she's been she went before but as it was kind of a freak accident so to speak where the one girl who made the olympics crashed the day before her flight and it ended her, she like had to be hella vacked out of there. So Brooke gets the call, pack your bags, you're on the team now. Hmm. So she goes to the London games. And afterwards, you know, she decided that she needed to take her training more serious and came to me. I was local. And I think me being younger and on the technology side, she took that risk. And so now, you know, we're not only have that coach-athlete relationship, but I would consider one of my best friends. Wow. And uh, it's been a growing process. What Olympics was it that you went to then? Rio. Okay. She took fourth. I bet that was incredible. Oh, man. It was. It was... I can't even put it into words. Yeah. I wish it was in a different country. Yeah. Not that I don't like Brazil. Yeah. It's just kind of disheartening when you see such a prestigious event mm -hmm. in such a high level of poverty. Yeah. You know, me being this compassionate and empathetic <laughs> person, I'm like... Yeah, especially the person that doesn't want to be better than anybody. Right. I'm just like, struggling. wow. Yeah. Like we've built all of this stuff and yet all of these people are struggling, struggling, to don't survive. even have toilets, running water, you know, they live in concrete boxes and I just like, man, what message are we sending to them? Yeah. So you, you, you let's go back to the thing you're talking about with the simple routine things. You, you, I heard you mentioned that I think in one of the th things that I heard you do the brush your teeth, whatever. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of your message, right? Very taking, big part. Taking care of the, the micro process. Micro process. Explain what that is. So 
what I explained to people was when I got to prison, and this is for every addict typically, and I think a lot of people in general, is for me, I didn't know how to brush my teeth every single day. Now, that's not what I'm saying. Everybody doesn't understand but where this is going. And so I told myself when I felt God say, I need you to get on your bike and go to the Olympics. It was like, okay, how am I going to get there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm in prison right now. <laughs> you, you know? Right. Same, same thing that probably, uh, you know, Joseph felt. Mm-hmm. Like, how am I supposed to get where you're telling me, but yeah, I'm where I'm at right now. Yeah. Then I read, those who can be trusted with little will be trusted with much. Mm. And I really started looking at the depth of that scripture, right? And I don't think a lot of people understand that trusting yourself with, be, being trusted with brushing your teeth every single day mm-hmm. and doing it with a good intention is really what that's all about. Mm. If you can take care of brushing your teeth, making your bed, organizing your stuff, and taking care of all of the little daily things that a lot of people overlook, yeah, then you'll be trusted with the greater things. And you weren't like that before. No. Yeah. <laughs> Dude. If we went back to my house right now, yeah. my shoe racks are all in order, my yeah. closet, t-shirts are color-coordinated, um, the bed's made. And people would argue that that's just your personality, but you're saying that's... Oh, no, that's, I became that. Yeah. And I became that because I had to prove to God that I could become a steward of little things uh-huh. that didn't seem... They seemed insignificant. And really, that was the root of my, my newfound gratitude for things, mm-hmm. right? Because I remember washing this white t-shirt. It was a Dickies white t-shirt when I was in prison. And if you had a Dickies white t-shirt in prison, you were a baller. Yeah. And I remember... You've always been a baller, huh? <laughs> no. I see your supreme one. <laughs> well, I'm, but now I'm in prison washing this white t-shirt. White Dickies and I'm, t-shirt. Yeah, white Dickies t-shirt. And I'm like, you know what? If this t-shirt in here represents value, how much more should I be grateful for every single thing mm. that exists beyond these walls? Brushing my teeth, making my bed. So does that, what do you call it again? The micro micro process. Does the micro process lead you to gratitude? Is that the, is that the I, idea? I believe it does. It because keeps it you grateful. Like that's the, that's the component, right? Gratitude right. for. You, you, you're, you're grateful for everything, mm-hmm. the small things. And you recognize that the small things, if you take care of them and they evolve over time, then you get to receive the big things. Mm. And that's what it's done. My micro process today is, you know, like I was talking to Miguel. I'm trying to recruit people who can be interns for what my social media marketing is going to become. Yeah. That's my micro process right now. Yeah. My podcast, creating micro content of my podcast, all of these small things, small goals that small are goals, yeah. obtainable, mm-hmm. still brush my teeth, make my bed. Those have all become habits. And mm-hmm. even when I'm feeling depressed, that's really when I tell myself, cause my mind will always say, ah, just, just go to the gym. Don't make your bed. When I say, nope, Today, I'm making my bed because yeah. I feel like right now, if I don't make my bed, I'm falling out of that micro process and I'm not winning and just being grateful that I'm up and I'm able to do things. Yeah. You, you still, you mentioned even feeling depressed and things like that. A lot of times people who have overcome, uh, I was talking with somebody just earlier today, they have this preconceived or assumption that people who are go-getters or successful or going after it, wanting their life to count, that they don't deal with the feelings of, I mean, you talk about anxiety or depression. Do you still experience those things? Absolutely. How do you, how do you navigate those, those uh, things in life for you? Depression is all about a plan. Mm -hmm. 
So depression wants me to stop, isolate, and sit, and self-pity, self-loathe, become a victim. Planning for me is how I've overcome a lot of that. So typically I have five tasks that I'm trying to accomplish every single day. I write them down when I get up. They're on a dry erase board to the left side of the end of my bed. As long as I hit those five things, I'm okay. Are they different every day? Sometimes. Uh-huh. Usually the gym is on there. What would be an example of your five? Like what's, on, what's your five for today? On the very simple, on Thursdays, you'll see gym, uh-huh. coffee shop, which is emails work. Miguel's see me there uh-huh. all the time. Poop. Mm-hmm. Take out my dog's poop. <laughs> do the laundry. That's on your list. Yeah, it's on my list. Yeah, and go to a meeting. Okay. And if you do this, then that's because you say. What did you say? Depression is wanting you to. Depression wants me to isolate. To isolate. Okay. So this. So this reminds you of what you have accomplished. Right. Your productivity. Right. I'm you moving. Have, you're moving. There. You moved your life forward today by accomplishing the this. five. These things that are insignificant to most people, but mm-hmm. it's not to me. Who'd you learn that from? Did you learn that from somebody, or is that something you just have? Uh, do I, I, the whole microprocess thing is all something I developed on my own. Now, like I've come to learn, there's other people. That oh yeah, it's not. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. right? Everybody's said and done everything before. Um, there's a guy Andy Frisella that I love. Mm-hmm. His podcast. He calls it the power list. Yeah. And it turns out he tells you to write five things down. Yeah. And he, you can buy his little power list book. And, and they're like daily goals. Yeah. Okay. And it's the same concept of what my microprocess is all about. I just tell it from a different side of the fence. And that's what helps you stay out of the depression. depression. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anxiety, the same kind of thing? Anxiety is usually backtracking, mm-hmm. cutting out things. And I need to be more still. I need rest. Sleep in. It's okay to sleep in. Take a day off. Level yourself back out, then get back into it. I started having panic attacks two years ago. Really? I don't get them all the time. I've had three. But just out of nowhere as a result of that. Yeah, and I know that's because I'm working toward. Yeah, so you have to scale. I'm running, 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 running. Are you big? Are you a routines guy? I know that's a thing. Hundred percent. Yeah. So what are another podcast? Master of your routine. Really? So what are some of your? I have a buddy who's really into routines right now. What is your? What are some of your routines? Well, I think Miguel would tell you that if you showed up, and if I'm in town, if you showed up to Cup of Joy between the hours of Mm eleven and one o'clock, I will be there. Really? Yep. How do you start your morning every morning? With that? No. What do you do? I, I go. I get in the bath. First thing out of the out of the bed, you're in the bath. Yep. Like the sitting bath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a guy. I take baths. Whatever. <laughs> I'm okay with my masculinity. I'm not, I'm not laughing. <laughs> I'm kind of laughing, but I'm just it's just it's just fun. I don't know why it's funny, but I just haven't heard of that routine. So you get up and you go straight to the bath. Yeah. Warm bath. Cold yeah. bath. Warm. You heard of this invigorating? Yeah, but have you heard of like the invigoration thing where you do like dousing of ice baths? Yeah, well, da- yeah, ice baths or showers where you get in. You yeah, like, sure. That's not your not thing. thing. No, you, you light candles and do bath yeah. bombs and. No, I don't do bath bombs, but you know, I have. I'm I'm into scents. So yeah, so you do, I have do candles. You do the bath. Yeah, and that's how you start your. Yeah, day. check my emails, see what the day is going to look like. You know, do some social media surfing, and I try to you know do a little bit of meditational stuff and focus on you know kind of what I'm going to do. Then I go to the gym. Mm-hmm. Go to the gym. After that, I'll usually try to eat something small. Then go to the coffee shop, and you know do contracts, answer emails, work on my website. You know, work on whatever I'm working on with mm-hmm. my my own brand, and then I'll go eat lunch, and then I'll go back to my house take my dog for a walk and usually that time i'll sit for about an hour in silence mm-hmm. like straight silence i don't turn tvs on i rarely turn tvs on yeah and then i'll go to the gym again twice you're two days yeah 
Okay. I got nothing else to do. Two a days. It's pretty intense. <laughs> no. I'm not, I'm not crazy in the gym no. anymore. And uh, I'll either go to a meeting after the gym or I'll go home. And uh-huh. then going home is another bath. But that one is much more still. And I'll, I'll just try and be still. Take a bath and then I'll, you know, take my dog for a walk. Get back. Go to bed. Lay in bed. Yeah. Still. Social media surf. But just yeah. stillness, quietness. I enjoy quietness now. I didn't before. Yeah, but that's that's my everyday life. You use, with social media. How do you use? How do you keep social media for you? Because I think this is a great conversation to continue to be had in our world. To keep it as a tool in your life versus mm-hmm. a distraction or yeah. something that becomes uh, something you're looking to for affirmation or comparison, things mm-hmm. like that. How do you keep it? Yeah, it's it's more escapism for me than affirmation and stuff. So it's a way to breathe. Yeah, it's kind of, and it's addict. I'm addicted to it. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Most people that know me will tell you yeah. he's always on his phone. I might need to do an intervention. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm, but I like if you also look at my social media right now. Like the last post I had was I don't know a week and a half, two weeks ago. Yeah, and so I'm not like it's more about escaping for you and just yeah, just, yeah, yeah. So like social media is a business for me now. Yeah. You know, which is huge, why I'm trying to part. recruit interns for it is because I do want to have seven days a week, but seven days a week of social get into the podcast listen to this this yeah. is where i'm at yeah, like very business focused yeah. right to get me to the influencer level yeah. in the addiction space so i'm not really doing it because i need likes yeah. i don't really care yeah i'm grateful for all 18,000 followers i have right now yeah because they've decided to follow me and i do giveaways and stuff for them but i don't find myself needing their attention to validate my okayness yeah or, which is important yeah but i think that's very hard for most people oh yeah because most kids like how many people want to be entrepreneurs today yeah. everybody everybody's everybody i mean I, the amount of people that want to teach me how to trade day stocks that are 19 years old it's amazing yeah. i'm like wow i didn't realize all of these kids they just became millionaires from nothing yeah. by trading day stocks like yeah. i want to buy their 300 dollars program <laughs> i I but know. it's that kind of thinking that gets us thinking we need likes, we need attention from yeah. all of these people to validate our existence. And I think it's just... How, speaking of that, it reminds me of the, you know, how do you fight to stay? There's so many things, I think, and social media is one of them, that baits you into, I think, other lanes or other, you know, you see someone's success, you see like the day stocks, and you think, well, I could totally do that, you know? Yeah. How do you keep yourself from being baited into other people's journeys and other people's paths to their success especially when you're a driven person especially when you're a person this is super this is super important yeah if you don't know how to be honest with yourself you're going to try and get in a lot of cars you're not you're not allowed to drive Mm -hmm. i don't want to be gary v yeah are you kidding me yeah who's going to beat him yeah nobody right i don't want to i'm not going to get into real estate and try and become grant cardone why yeah he's already got a jet yeah Gary's going to buy the Jets yeah. at some point. <laughs> VaynerMedia is becoming this huge thing for hip-hop artists and oh, sports yeah. people. I don't want his market right? because that's not mine. Yeah, That's not my truth. My truth is I grew up, I had mental health issues. I was talented at sports. I lost my sports. I found out I was an addict. I was able to escape that, and now I'm helping people with it. Yeah, That's my lane. Sometimes I want to be Eric Thomas. Yeah. I wish I could get into his space. But every time I try and mo- move that way, that mountain is too steep. Yeah. God didn't give me the it's tools to climb that. Yeah. So if you can't be honest with yourself and actually say, 
is this something I'm capable of doing? Yeah. Then you're going to try and get in everybody else's lanes and you're going to find yourself getting in that lane. And when you hit the traffic, you're going to get out of the car and you're going to walk back. Yeah. And you're going to go get in somebody else's car and then you're going to get in their traffic and you're going to be like, man, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Because really traffic is what every person has to go through to get to their destination. But if you're not in the car knowing where you're going, mm-hmm. you don't want to sit in traffic. Right? right? Everybody that visits LA, they say, why do people live here? Right. Yeah. This traffic is terrible. Yeah. They're going home. Yeah. They know they're going to get home. Yeah. They know how long it's going to take because they do it every single day. Right. Same thing with life in our lane when we go after our goals. Yeah. If you don't know where you're going and what you're going to get, you don't want to sit in that traffic. Right. So you get out of the car and you get out of it. And you lose, you lose your opportunities. Yeah. That doesn't mean, I don't want to say that you can't become the next Gary Vee. And you can't become the next this. But I think there's an honest question of, can you do it? And I had that question myself in the prison cell. I wanted to make music. I liked hip hop. Yeah. I think I could rap. Yeah. Then I had to ask myself, can I really do that? Right. What are the possibilities of a white dude becoming a rapper (laughs) and not being measured to Eminem? Yeah. Because isn't that the problem now? Yeah. We've had one of the greatest hip hop artists ever who's a white dude. Logic has the same problem. Yeah. He's great in his own right. But the comparisons of him being white and Eminem being white makes it hard for him to push through. He's going to have to keep going. I felt like, you know what? That's not my lane. Yeah. I grew up in Clovis. Right. I don't have the hip hop message. Well, there's a lot of the two, I think, just there's an authenticity that has to be had. And in other words, in other, uh, because if you, if you don't, you, it's almost like your expression becomes synthetic and people, I think, know that. We all you know feel I mean? it. You're another version of. And I think that the greats are always, they find a way to... Do what you're saying. To, they live to, their they live their truth, mm-hmm. and it's authentic and. What genuine. do you mean when you? Everybody has different dish, definition of living their truth. What is living their truth for you? So the message I'm giving you is exactly what I lived. Uh huh. So living your truth is is being vocal about your journey, owning your journey, owning your journey, and being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability, right? Vulnerability mm-hmm. is these are my weaknesses. Mm-hmm. These are my struggles. Showing your humanity. Showing your humanity, right? But you can't show me weaknesses that don't exist. Right. Or ones that I haven't had. The ones that you haven't had, right? Like I see a lot of people on Instagram right now that are just regurgitating what Gary's saying. Yeah. Regurgitating what Ed Milet is saying. Regurgitating what the 1,500 books they read a year says. It's not them. Doesn't come from experience. No. Doesn't come from, yeah. No. Tell me you. Right. Yeah, bro. If you shoot for the moon, yeah. at least you'll land on the stars. <laughs> we get it. Yeah, right. We get it. Yeah. But what about you? Yeah. That's how I am. And there's something about that, you know, you call it, you know, owning your truth, living your truth. You know, some would call it authenticity, fighting to stay authentic. That, to me, that's the thing that has the ability that when you talk, it has the ability to get in in side of someone's heart. Yep. To get inside and actually change, mm-hmm. you know, the, it's traje- like a good teacher. the trajectory of their... It's like a good teacher growing up. Yeah. When you experience that, it's like, ooh, this is different. Yeah. They care. Yeah. Whoa. Learning in here is fun. Yeah. Because you can feel they actually care. Yeah. You know? And I think that's what living your truth is, is just being 100% vulnerable and honest and living that out to its fullest. Yeah. And letting that journey evolve. 
You know, yeah. my truth today is not my truth nine years ago. Because it does evolve, right? And I it think that that's the trap. And who you are does too. You know, I think that that's the thing about, well, who, finding yourself. Well, you're you're an evolving being. You're, you're going constantly. to continue. You're on that journey forever. Yes. You know what I mean? Because and, yep. it's changing. And you're the depth changing. that you go as you evolve, it's like you find yourself that one time. You're like, oh. Yeah. I always try to say people, 30, they're like, oh, man, you're 30. You feel like you're getting old? No, I feel like 30s have been the best years of my life. Yeah. Like, I feel like I accepted who I was completely, cut people out of my life that didn't serve me or what we want to serve each other. Yeah. And it's been great because of that. But it's like since that moment, it's like, oh, okay, this is even even deeper understanding of myself and even right. deeper understanding of myself. So it's like I'm constantly finding new parts of myself. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. So you've you've accomplished, you know, those pretty much all of the goals that you had in, in prison. Mm -hmm. And you're continuing, to, continuing to, to ride that horse, so to speak. What's next for you? I'm building a multi-million dollar brand. And what is that? It's a brand that helps people mm -hmm. centered on, on help. So that's, I don't know where it's yeah, going. That's yet. on the horizon. Though. It's on the horizon. Yeah. Like I'm saying that and I'm saying it because when I told people in prison that I'm going to the Olympics, they said, I'm crazy. Yeah. Well, now the dude that went to the Olympics after he was in prison is going to build a multi-million dollar brand. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to be treatment centers, um, my speaking, social media, the podcast, I'm going to have a million viewers someday yeah. in the addiction space, listening to my podcast getting sober through the tools and the steps that my brand creates. Yeah. Employees, putting people to work and paying for their family's food. I mean, all of the, I see these things now as like the blessings of what a multi-million dollar brand is going to do. It's yeah. not about a Lamborghini. Right. This is about helping people. Right. This is about using the tools that God gave me to advance the big things that yeah. I can be trusted with. Absolutely. In order to do that, I'm going to have to keep brushing my teeth, making yeah. my bed, organizing my stuff. But I'm sure that a treatment center is in the works. So good, man. Yeah. I'm excited to watch, and there's no doubt that you most definitely will accomplish that. I believe it. So, man, Tony, thanks for stopping by. No, thanks for letting me uh, run up this amount of time. I, no, I, it's what we do. Appreciate hopefully your it. kid's going to be all right. You're not going to be in the doghouse when you get I home. I already am. I better I'll go. Tell your that. wife I said sorry. She's going to be like, what the heck? She's going to be so bad.